Hello, Heron. How are you this evening? Fine, Tom. How are you? Oh, I'm feeling extra complex. But then again, I always say that. That's my shtick. Do you have any topics that you would like to uh, to add to the list for this evening? Mm, apparently not. As I announced on our last recording, I put the topics up early. I was planning on putting it up a couple of days ago, but... Um, yeah, it's funny. Some weeks I have the topics like by Wednesday, and some weeks the topics just come to me Friday morning. And this was one of those weeks. So, <laughs> well, they still haven't come to me. Ah, so, very so good. you're doing great. <laughs> I guess I am. I guess I am. So I have a few. Although extra... I do want uh, you, you mentioned racism, and that I, I'm really kind of interested to explore that one if you ever get around to. So that's the early that's the earlier journal. I mean, I think um, the thing that struck me and one of the largest pieces of feedback on the Facebook page was that folks are clearly getting quite a bit out of our last deep dive into the journals. Really? And yeah, yeah. What did they? Oh, this is on the Facebook, so I can go yeah. read this stuff. You can. Oh, good. Okay. So, right. but, but I think the thing that strikes me is in in not necessarily small pieces, but probably week in week out. The stuff on racism, I think, came from the earlier journal. I'd need to go back and check, and I'd need to actually publish that to the feed, which will give me an opportunity to do that when we are... Well, it's just that when you, since when you brought it up, that sort of, you know, that's a, that's a big word to bring up. And so I've been sort of curious about that one ever since. Mm. Yeah, I think the thing with racism was actually your deconstruction of it. And it really only happened on a few pages, but it's probably worth... Sitting down and formalizing as we did last week with the other sections of, I mean, yeah. different, different. Journal, yeah, I'm just. But. I was just curious about that because uh, <laughs> it was one once. I don't. Did I ever tell you about being at that party when I said something really inappropriate? No. <laughs> this was back when I was first learning to play the cello, mm. and um, and I was. I went to a party with my cello teacher, and there were a lot of cultured, intelligent people there. And I was really getting drunk. <laughs> and I was doing this magic trick for everybody, and uh, I dropped something. And I, as I, and I was going to pick it up, but what I said was, I don't want to pick that up. Is there a nigger around here who can get that for me? You know... Think I don't know what I was thinking actually, <laughs> you know it was, in, especially in that crowd. I mean, it was just one of these sort of perverse. I guess I just wanted to see what the reaction was or something. I don't know, but in any case, it turned out there was a black man there. <laughs> ah, Heron, <laughs> and you were never invited back. Uh, I don't remember actually. What I, I'm, I think you can pretty much guarantee that I lost my welcome there. <laughs> so it's interesting, actually, because my uh, wife's my wife's grandmother, who is probably would have been twelve years older than you, grew up in LA, and she saw many waves of race riots. Oh, yeah, I was here through those. Yeah, yeah but no, she saw the early ones. Like, she saw the zoot oh, suits the in the 40s. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which um, were yeah, distinctly different to the, you know, the Watts riots. And oh, yeah, that was that was another era. I mean, that was that really was a, a different planet than, uh, 
than 10 or 15 years later. Yeah. And the university that you mentioned uh, last week, as we were, as I was editing the audio, I looked it up online, and that's one of them is south of south of Watts, actually. Oh, uh, Dominguez Hills. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. And the yeah the the pop the student population there is probably seventy percent black. Mm. I, you know, I don't know. Maybe not that high. I don't know. But it, but there's a a whole lot. Well, that was a really diverse place. There were a whole lot of everybody there. That was kind of cool. Hmm. Yes, it was interesting actually going back through the audio last week because um, certainly, I mean, your son is still friends with you on Facebook. Yeah, but uh, I haven't heard from him in ages, and I made it quite clear to him that I was, you know, available anytime he wanted to. Uh, mm have a relationship and i haven't heard from him so you know i mean maybe i will maybe he's out there thinking about it um, well he's not- getting your updates at least i mean you have a connection still in some sense oh well yeah but whether he lo- I, oh i hadn't thought about that yeah i mean everything i see through you through facebook he's going to see through you through facebook yeah i guess so i guess so i hadn't thought about that well it's assuming he even uses there's almost nothing nothing on his page so i don't know what's going on i talked uh, the girl who made the initial contact with me mm-hmm. i talked to her uh, six months ago or so and and inquired about you know if everything's okay and she said it was just fine mm. so i don't know whether she knows what she's talking about or not but i mean there's certainly he, he, he's not yeah she said he's fine so mm. that's all i have to go by fair enough Fair and that's enough. fair enough but to me. I mean, that's that's good. I mean, I, I yeah. <laughs> so, as I'm, I'm going through my list of topics now, including the um, Facebook augmentations as well. Um, as happens occasionally, I found myself in a discussion with a co-worker this week, which led, he, just by talking about his, you know, day-to-day life and his dreams and things like this, struck upon the fact that he has this very strong internal narrative that's causing him problems that, mm-hmm. you know, attacks him at various points. And, <laughs> yeah. You well, know. almost everybody does, but, but in any case, go on. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I thought, wow, this is one of these out in the wild Gendo experiences where I can explain to him what I do every Friday evening. <laughs> and I thought, how oh, useful. God. How interesting. So anyway. So is this guy still talking to you now? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, okay. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> All right, good. Yes. I, I would be very careful <laughs> with bringing I these kinds of so, subjects. I don't think so, actually. No, I mean, this is, my, this is, again, this notion of you being offensive and the fact that I don't find... Well, and maybe the world is just caught up with me. You know, like I, I, for so many years, I, had to, I felt like I had to be really careful because people got really nervous talking about some of this stuff. Well, I felt, I mean, t- to be frank, I felt a little bit uncomfortable talking about his dreams. I mean, I think that's a level of intimacy that I typically share with people that I know quite yeah. well. And Well, that's and up to him life. to decide whether he wants exactly. to share. Exactly. But I thought if he'd given me this level of, of discussion, I could at least yeah. talk about, um, you know, the, the discussions yeah. that you and I have had and the whole notion that... Um, this thing that is, um, you know, the, chastising him on a yeah. regular basis and putting him it's down. Just is language the, machine. It's exactly. so simple. You, you know, it's just there. Sometimes it even says smart stuff. Well, this is the thing. You see, <laughs> I, since we've been talking, I mean, over the past, what, two years, whatever many months, maybe three years now, I've mine has almost completely silenced. And the only use that I find is that it serenades me on occasion. It's like a, a mental minstrel, which is the point that I made in my dot points. 
and that it really is very strange now. I can I can stop talking and hear nothing internally. Yeah. Good. And well, I think good. Yeah. I is this something new for you, or it's, a, it's something that um. Oh, no, as I told him, I've gone through periods, particularly when I lived in the UK, uh, where I had very strong, and I'm, I think probably from my childhood programming, very strong negative narratives and all this oh, kind of yeah. stuff, as he was describing. Yeah. My breakthrough point, and I'm not sure if I've ever told you this story, but my breakthrough point was after the, the work that I was doing in the UK, we lived in an absolutely beautiful area, but my boss was just a complete asshole. <laughs> and I worked in this job for three and a half years, and a year to the day after I left that job, one of the people who I was very close with committed suicide. And my boss in the UK would just scream at this fellow, and, and this fellow was a PhD, he was in his, I don't know, mid-late 40s, very, very intelligent. He and I had had a number of, of you know, phenomenally good conversations. In fact, he once farted in my company, which I think is the <laughs> definition of... You, of a true friend. <laughs> so, so, yes, he felt comfortable enough to pass gas. But um, he was... And it struck me that it was just... And I've talked to people um, who are both still in this job and who've left this um, employer, and the general consensus is that, yes, it was just a really toxic environment. So I found myself getting a little depressed. And I'm very mindful that... Um, I come from a family that's kind of naturally depressive in certain circumstances, and I was going into my GP at the time. I had a, a stomach ailment. Um, and the GP said, well, have you thought of taking, you know, low-dose antidepressants for a, a short period of time? And I took them, and immediately the voice disappeared. Really? It was what very, were you taking? Very, I can't remember, but it was very mild. It wasn't anything like, you yeah. know, Prozac or anything. It was just, like, literally... A, Kind of base level. Well, yeah, and see, that's the thing is that every every human biochemistry is different. So mm. to talk about whether something is heavy duty or not mm. is, I mean, you're really only talking. You know, I'm I'm immune to LSD. So so I took again, it for only six weeks. Yeah. I mean, I didn't take it for I think probably less than that, probably four or five. Why did you stop? Um, because I learned from it. I mean, you understand the whole notion of these kind of pharmaceuticals to be something that you learn from. Yeah. Oh, fine. I mean, so you figured, okay, so you just figured you'd learned your lesson and you don't no, need I realized that, that. No, I realized <laughs> that a good portion of, I mean, there, there were a number of effects. Um, it made me sleep regularly. Um, I stopped drinking alcohol at that time and I haven't drunk alcohol since. That was another thing that I did at that period of time Yeah. because I thought it would also help my stomach ailments. Um, alcohol? Yeah, stop drinking alcohol. Oh, oh yeah. I, was, I thought you meant drinking alcohol was good for your No, no, not at all, no. I was trying to figure Um, that one out. (laughs) So, but the thing that the antidepressant taught me was that I'm perfectly capable of surviving without this negative narrative. Mm, Yeah. And I think, I mean, it it periodically returned, but when I knew that I could actually switch it off, that I actually had control over it. See, I don't think it's even important. I mean, if if you can shut it off, that's great, but to me, the main thing is just breaking the identification with it, taking its power away. So when you hear it, it's just there. It's that thing again. It's that old program running. Uh, And it really doesn't make any difference. I feel a great sense of peace in terms of the silencing. I know we've discussed this yeah. previously. Well, I like the silence, too. I'm just saying they're, they're distinctly different. That's one of the things that can happen, and I you know, I agree with you. That's uh, worth pursuing. <laughs> so now I find the only time that I have this kind of internal voice is actually in song. 
Which is very curious. I always had this, I mean, you know, as a child I was tested for perfect pitch and these kind of things. I've always had, like, an internal music within me. But I think that now I utilize it very much in terms of... But that's not your language machine. That's another, that's a part of it. But, uh, yeah, that... Well, it's utilizing it for something. It's using the vocal part of the language machine. Mm. Yeah, that apparatus, the, yeah. But I'm saying it has it doesn't have syntax. Well, it does have syntax, no, no, it has, but, it, it but it's very, different. Yeah, it's of course syntactical. it does. It's got all yeah, it's got all sorts of other things going on. Have you ever studied music theory? Well, I, we were going to get into that, but the short answer is yes. Okay, well then that's what I'm saying is yeah, yeah. It, there's an intellectual component to music that most people are completely unaware of. They just like like it because it sounds good. Yes, I mean, in my, in my misspent youth, um, I used to sing. I mean, I played the piano, I played the violin, I played the trombone for a period of time. <laughs> but I used to sing, and when I was in my, I don't know, early, probably you know, early teens, I realized that um, I didn't have enough mental, um, mental dexterity, I didn't have enough um, physical dexterity to be really good at playing any instrument. I mean, I can play yeah. the piano pretty well yeah, you could be okay play. but you're not going to be exactly. on this i'm not yeah. going i'm just not going to so the thing that really interested me was um musicianship and i took um, musicianship with a series of different musicians my piano teacher what was, does that mean musicianship so that's basically uh composition music history um for, for example i would go on um like youth choir camps and compose musicals that would run for you know between 45 minutes to an hour and a half, and I would do this maybe once a quarter um, for probably a couple of years. I mean, I I did multiple musicals over that period of time. And I composed through high school. I wrote, you know, school band compositions and things like that, and four flutes and whatever other instrument they could throw in. I mean, composition was a big part of my childhood. You know, we've never talked about this. I thought we've we've kind of naturally equated to the fact that there might be something there, but I mean, I don't. Well, know yeah, we've, we've you've, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's been some stuff about you know, but I had no idea that you were uh, writing it was uh, the to thing, perform. The, 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 I mean, the point, that's a big deal. The point it came to was basically around the time that I moved to the U.S., I had enough money where I could. I recorded two CDs prior to um, going to the U.S. One in. Oh, 97 and one in 99. And I had worked through, you know, my university studies and I (laughs) I had enough money saved where I could take six months off and record another CD and put, like, record it full time. Um, And then the whole moving to the US and, you know, Wozniak and all the startups happened. And that's been a piece of my life that's always been left. So, I mean, for example, you know, now the theme for Model Rail Radio and Biota and the podcast themes that I do and little incidental bits of music through podcasts and things like that. And I, um, maybe about six, five or six years ago now, I worked on a podcast called The Best Damn Podcast Ever, which was a comedy podcast that was put together by some, I don't know, 18-year-old kids in uh, Mississippi. And I worked with them for about a year and every show, I had to do a new musical composition for them, which was quite an interesting discipline yeah, right. because it was a comedic composition. You're taking, in good company, you know. Bach taking, had to do it every Sunday, too. Yeah, so, so you know. no, I think it was, it was very, I mean, those kind of things I really like. And um, certainly when I was in the UK, 
I maintained a, a turntable as well as um, a synthesizer, and here I have a synthesizer. But I mean, I guess the dream is to get a piano again, and I've I've owned vi- violins periodically through my life. You mean a real piano? A real piano, yeah. Why? Um, I actually the the uh, so the the um, synthesizer I have is like an emu, and that has very good weighting. But it's just the the feel. So through my childhood, in fact, oh, I, oh, no, I you're right. There's nothing like the piano. At, I mean, the physical feel yeah. of the piano cannot be duplicated. Period. That's the end of that. Yeah. But what I'm questioning is how important that really is, because my sense is you can actually have a more sensitive electronic keyboard than you can ever have. I have any mechanical. But keyboard. it's the same thing between you know MP3s versus records. I mean, I think the. No, I don't think it's the same thing. That's another thing. <laughs> well, I mean, it's 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 the notion of imperfect, perhaps old technology. Well, it's just it's just about which kind of imperfect you choose. True, but it has a historical element to it as well. But yeah. uh, well, then we should still be playing harpsichords, then I guess. Well, <laughs> I have had a lot of fun when I've had a chance to play a harpsichord. Yeah, I don't, right. yeah. aside from the tuning aspect, but then again, you know. <laughs> that's that's another thing. But uh, so your music was a large part of my. And the thing is, when my parents got divorced, it was one of the things that kind of maintained me through that period of time as well. Yeah, because I would spend a lot of time. I mean, there was two things I did in my early teens, and that was build my my mother for whatever reason thought that the best use of my time was to build fires. So I would build elaborate kilns and fires and try to get the fires hotter and hotter. And then I would go to these choir things. And these were two central parts of my Mm. life at the time, which was very curious. (laughs) Um, But the thing that struck me about choirs was I just got frustrated. I think there's something in the 93 writing associated with this, because one of the choirs, the first choir I was part of was like a young group of, it was a boys' choir, it was a boys' choir, the Canberra Boys' Choir, which is where I grew up. And the lead conductor for that was a very curious man. He basically promoted all the small boys that had relatively weak voices. And, I mean, I probably was at least six foot three when I was 13, <laughs> 12, 13. He would never promote any of us that had the experience. A few years later, it turned out he was a pedophile. He spent... 18 months in jail for it and in fact one of the boys um was one of the one of my friends actually that i went through choir with but by the time i reached my uh i don't know when i was about 13 my voice actually rose at least an octave it was the curious thing i had a kind of second soprano just before my voice broke and i had that for about a year and then i went and sung with this woman who um, was kind of, I don't know, internationally renowned, whatever that means. And she had a group of very, very wealthy kids that would all go to her, you know, tutelage, what have you. And um, she would do her own compositions and Peter, Paul and Mary and some sacred music. But she would have these every three month camps that would go where, you know, a large group of us, maybe, I don't know, 20, 30, you know, teenagers would go to the middle of nowhere and we'd have some farmhouse that she had been able to get and we would work on 
maybe five or six different musicals, and then the parents would come for the final day and we would perform these various <laughs> musicals, which was great fun. I mean, really? it was, that's you know, great. And yeah. I think it was also... See, that's, a re- that's how a real reasonable plan, that would be our job. See? I mean, that's the way that would just be. We could mm. spend our time doing that kind of shit. That would be great. You're the so thing, lucky, man. But the thing that struck me through this experience was she was constantly robbed. She was constantly what? Robbed. She, every time, like, she would move from place to place. She would have various locations that were in slightly kind of seedier areas. <laughs> and she would never, you know those little engraving tools that you're supposed to write your name and serial number and stuff on? Yeah. She would never do that to any of the equipment. And the turnover from that place was pretty phenomenal. I mean, basically the instruments and the recorders and all the sound equipment. And, were stolen by yes. the kids themselves? I don't or think what? it was stolen by the kids. I mean, it could have been the kids' it's, friends. But I think the kids were all of kind of an upper crust elite. I mean, it's funny, through Facebook now, um, I must have somehow seen it. I think I saw into some of their homes. My recollection is actually probably following a couple of these camps, I would go back to one of their houses and wait for, you know, my mother or father to swing by. And um, I seem to recall that they were... You see, there were all these kind of there were all these kind of social structures in Canberra. Like my parents, my father was an academic, which was relatively poor in the totem pole. Like the general public servants <laughs> would earn more money than the academics generally. And then you had the people that were in commerce or in the defence industries or these kind of things, and they would always have the they would always live in the really quite swanky parts of town. And you know, so I remember going around to one house where. It was just, you'd walk in, the main room was just a library, and you were surrounded by, you know, dense bookshelves and wooden shelves, and of course, you know, a roaring fireplace and all these kind of things. <laughs> and it just, you, you, you are right, there was something very utopian about that experience, but I also remember feeling, I think I actually got a scholarship to go there, which is how I afforded to be there, because I was sufficiently skilled in singing and musicianship. And I seem to recall my parents didn't have to pay as much as the other parents, which probably indicates that I'd gotten really quite a good scholarship to be part of her crew. I have one extended friend who was also part of the crew, but on the fringes, um, and she is, it was actually a phenomenal soprano. I mean, she still sings in the UK, and she, I think, got various music scholarships and various other things. And I used to record her periodically. In fact, she's on the first um, Noble Ape CD, Isle of the Apes. But yeah, it was a very strange environment. The other thing was that the woman had what's that disorder? Narcolepsy, where you fall asleep. <laughs> so she would be conducting, and then she would just fall asleep. And she had a daughter who was always there to kind of catch her. Oh, so her daughter kind of, would just sort of stand there waiting for her yes. to collapse. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very that's, strange. That's a good, where can I get a job like that? Yeah, <laughs> this is the thing I was thinking about, Heron. It came up this week because. This week has been 10 years since... So, let me, let me take a... I can advertise a guy here. I, I'm available right here. You know, if you got narcolepsy and you need to pay somebody to catch you when you fall down, I charge $100 an hour. 10 years ago, at about this time, I was sitting in the UK looking out over a beautiful field where the villagers would come and do their fireworks displays, and when the circus came to town, it would be in the field. And I received an email from Apple Computer. And two engineers at Apple uh, had picked up Noble 8. They were 
and they were interested in um, displaying it at their developer conference, and they also wanted to, to bundle it with every Mac that they sold. <laughs> and it occurred to me at the time, it would have been really generous. This is 2003? 2003. Okay. It occurred to me at the time that it would have been... What OS was there? Oh, that was already OS ten. Yeah, too, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, I right. had invested about 18 months rewriting Noble 8 for OS ten. In fact, it was what was called Carbon, which ran on both OS nine and OS ten. Right, I remember those but days. I did the optimizations necessary so it ran as fast as possible on both. I'd been able to... Yeah. The framework was completely different on OS nine. You could get upwards of like 120 frames a second without even thinking. In OS ten, everything was synced on the frame rate. So you had to do additional optimization to, um, to get the, the best possible process of power. Yeah. But I was thinking about this in the context of affirmations. Because certainly going through your journals, <laughs> the, the notion of affirmations is relatively central. And I've started to realize that, and, and really this has only happened in the past week, that my, I'm pretty good with those affirmation things. So 10 years ago, I had these developers display my stuff at this conference. Now, some background to this, what, what Apple calls their WWDC, typically they charge between, nine, well, between about $16 and $1,900 to go and attend for three or four days. Yeah. It's, um, I actually feel, I felt really quite embarrassed about my um, work being displayed there. And it was only until I got the DVD box set of um, the displays of Noble 8 and heard the crowd cheer and all this kind of stuff. And this was about four months after it had been displayed. Well, you weren't even there. No, this is the okay. thing. that yeah. um, Copyright law is a very interesting thing. Copyright law says that you cannot obstruct a, an artist from seeing their performance, which means that if you, if you perform an artist's work you have to be able to get the artist into the work. It's a very curious thing. If he thing. wants it. I mean, he, he doesn't have exactly. to. Exactly, yeah. No, they're not going to tie you down and bring you in in yeah. a gurney just to make <laughs> okay. sure that you Well, I just wanted to make sure. Yes. <laughs> but um, Apple didn't really... Apple really hasn't had that kind of philosophy associated with copyright law. So as the years went by, there were a few other kind of punctuation points where Apple displayed Noble Ape at WWDC. In 2005... They'd moved all their architecture over to Intel, and they displayed an Intel version of Noble Ape without even telling me, because obviously everything was hush-hush and top secret. Yeah. In about 2000, I think 2009 was the last major display, <laughs> and they had done another series of things, which they had actually confided in me early. I'd gone and given a talk at Intel, and the Intel guys had been very upfront about what they were using Noble Ape for at the time, which was what they call Grand, Grand Central Dispatch, which is a way of even further kind of optimizing, um, you know, mathematical instructions on processes. And um, so last year um, I was working at, at Netflix, as I am currently, and uh, WWDC was announced at like 5 a.m., so I couldn't get a <laughs> ticket. Um, but I wasn't particularly fussed. Anyway, this year came around and I actually gave people notice in advance. They said 10 a.m., we're going to start, you know, doing the tickets. And I knew immediately because it was on CNN yeah, and all yeah. the things that it was just going to be an absolute scrum. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, tens of thousands of nerds yeah. with their credit cards ready and yeah. somewhere. Yeah, and maybe you'll get through or maybe. Maybe you won't. <laughs> so anyway, I got on there and I, 
I should probably point out that I bought an iPhone 5, um, two iPhone 5s, one for my wife, one for me, um, when the iPhone 5s came out and stayed up till 12.30 at night on a Thursday to get the two iPhone 5s. So I kind of have a sense of Apple's, you know, how to try to game their system. But even so, come 10.02, I had put my credit card details in, hit 10.02? 10.02 a.m. Oh, yeah. It started well, already at 10. too late. Exactly. <laughs> Got the error presented <laughs> up, and I thought, them's to breaks. Um, and my co-workers had emailed, you know, uh, two of them had been successful, and the rest of us hadn't. Yeah. At about 4.30 yesterday, Apple got in contact with me, and they said, actually, we reserved a ticket for you. So, <laughs> I, 10 years after Noble 8 being displayed at this bourgeois computer developer event, you've got to appreciate as well, this is prior to the iPhone. So, 10 years ago, it was a very different crowd. These were hardcore Mac heads because there was no iPhone. Now, it's almost exclusively iOS, iPhone, sure, folk, yeah. app, iPad, what have you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've, I've got a ticket to go to the ball, Heron. So it's very, very strange to me. I'm mindful that um, I probably shouldn't promote 2003 to, through to 2013, but I think I might get a couple of Noble 8 T-shirts printed up and, um, you know, wander through the halls with them on occasionally. I don't yeah, really get a sense... Prepared. It doesn't hurt to be prepared. Yeah. Uh, my, my view is that there is, I mean, there's certainly folks that have gone in contact with me since then, and I think the community is swayed very heavily towards iOS and there's only a small core group of, you know, Mac development folk. And truth be told, obviously, the role of my employer is iOS. So, I mean, I, I'm going to be attending the yeah. iOS stuff as well. But it does give well, me... I think that's pretty much going to be the future. Mm. You, you need the other stuff for specific kinds of things. Most people don't need anything more than an iPad. It is a very interesting thing. So, yes, it's going to be quite curious to, um, after, you know, years of not going and at the same time having a thought in the back of my head that, um, you know, part of this was actually Apple's responsibility. I mean, truth be told, even with my work currently, I work very closely with Apple. Um, and, you know, there are some features in iOS 7 that I've had some kind of strong causal connection with, seen them early and worked on them, etc., so, yeah, it is a strange relationship um, over this many years. And, yeah, I'm actually, I mean, I'm going to be up in San Francisco for the week. I don't think we'll be able to record on the Friday night. We might be able to record on the Saturday evening when I get back. Um, but, yeah, it's going to be one of those oh, yeah, interesting it's be cultural. And, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to have a lot to talk about from that experience. The thing Why don't you, if you... Yeah, bring your iPad and record conversations. So the thing that strikes me is, yes, <laughs> what, the thing that I find about, um, so you may recall I went to an artificial life and a model rail thing last year in yeah. kind of a July time frame. What I found there was, although I recorded um, sessions that I gave at the artificial life conference, really these kind of environments aren't the best places to record audio. There's a lot yeah. of background noise. There's a lot of additional stuff going on. I mean, my... Oh, yeah. I know. I know. My hope is out of the thousand, um, you know, there may be some folks in this, or certainly I know there are uh, a few folks from Model Rail Radio that will be attending. So I'll be able to uh, organize some kind of get-together, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking, uh, you know, you're bound to meet some interesting people there. You know, might as well include them in the podcasts. One of the interesting things about the iOS community 
is a lot of them are like small business folk. I mean, when you see the iOS apps, particularly, you know, on sale for a dollar ninety nine or, you know, 99 cents or these kind of things, there are a group of developers that make their livelihood from those apps. And some of them, they have like six, some of them have 10, some of them have 14 of these apps. Mm -hmm. And, um, they maintain and they're actually job. making a living doing it. One of my co-workers um, was in this position. I mean, the only reason really that he came to Netflix was because Netflix pays astronomically. But he was making quite a comfortable living in Boston. He, I think, had six um, iOS apps, maybe four iOS apps and two Mac apps. And he had a large user base for these apps, and he was very well known and respected. And it's always struck me as really strange, because, I mean, I have the technical abilities to do that. I've just always, similar to what you've described with with your own views, I've always had this slightly kind of leftist (laughs) element to me, where I'm always, like, really concerned about charging money for things. Yeah, I know, it sucks. Bad programming, see, that's still part of my old language machine bullshit. But the thing that strikes me with this group of people is that they are very survival smart. I mean, they basically have a space where they have to think very dynamically about where their next app is going to fall and how they actually utilize their time. And they treat yeah. it as very much as, you know, a, a, a standard job, basically. Well, they should. That It is. If they're going to succeed at it, they better do it that way. Yes. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's a very interesting community. I mean, I'm, I, I mean, I also, uh, to be a tourist in San Francisco isn't a particularly shabby thing. I mean, aside from the events which are uh, cultivated through... Are they, are they giving you hotel, too, or just yes. tickets? No, no, work is paying for hotel and tickets. So oh, okay. oh and, but, I mean, you got the tickets and, for free, though, Apple. Well, oh, they didn't give them to you. They just reserved them they for reser- you no, in I, case you wanted to pay for them. Yes, I, 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 I <laughs> work will reimburse okay. me for the, uh, for the pleasure <laughs> oh, of buying the okay. tickets. So. I thought they gave them to you. Finally. Yeah. No, yeah, a decade later, hey, Tom, we've been using your software all this time, and yes, <laughs> the funny thing about this associated with affirmation is that I wouldn't have my job at Netflix today if it weren't for Noble Ape. I wouldn't have my job at Netflix today if I hadn't cultivated a decade worth of working with Apple. And it's an interesting point associated with affirmation because through this entire period my focus has, I mean obviously I've had other day jobs and what have you, but my focus has been maintained on this kind of technology which has enabled me to get a job, which, to be perfectly frank, Apple Computer itself couldn't give me. So there's a strange thing associated with affirmation. I, you know, I initially looking at your, you know, countless pages of writing, thought to myself, ah, affirmation. But when I actually apply it to my own life, it's been highly applicable, Heron. Well, it is part of examining the way your language machine functions, and trying to do something, anything, to install new patterns. Yeah, I think it's even more profound than that. I think what it is, is irrespective of whatever narrative is going on internally, mm-hmm. it gives you a projection of possibilities for the future. Now, you could... It's, it's to do, actually, with how strongly it is a part of your view of the future. If you write these things down and say these things and what have you with the hope that it might happen. It's very different to actually saying, no, this is, this is the future, you know, 
I'm in this position currently, and here is where I want to be, and here are the steps that I need to enact in order to get to where I want to be. And the interesting thing about that as well is that I've used this throughout my life. I mean, my whole narrative from my... From where did you learn? I mean, you say all your life. I mean... So, no, look, I can talk about from when I was 13. I can certainly talk about from my, you know, from when I can remember from when I was seven. But certainly from when I was 13 through okay. high school, um, even prior to 13, actually, I had a very strong sense that through software... I could get out of Australia, and I could basically... Okay. Oh, so you already had the idea of getting out of Australia at 13. But no, I had that from a relatively early age. And why, um, was, why was that? Australia is a great place to visit, but you really wouldn't want to live there if you had... It's funny, actually, because... Um, is it some, a cultural thing? It's you, a series of cultural things. Firstly, yeah, okay. you're always... There are, there are two paradoxes. The first paradox is the underdog, where the, the, in, in the UK it's called the plucky loser. They won't call it like that in Australia. But it just means that near enough is kind of good enough, and you tried your hardest, but you yeah. didn't quite get yeah. there. And yeah. that's just the, And the reverse is the tall poppy syndrome, which means that if you excel in Australia, they're going to cut you down anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. you have these two things that are so heavily and you've got a, the, it's difficult to really explain it in the context of the US because the US is is kind of sports crazy I mean the you have the kind of you know the the quarterback and the cheerleader you have these kind of visions of you know divine sexuality given to you through <laughs> sports which is even more extreme in the central part of the U.S., I mean, on the oh, coast, I know it's crazy. It's just on the coast is one thing. You you go to you know, oh, I know, yeah, Michigan I know State University, you know, <laughs> that whole belt, and this yeah. is more than just an idea. This is really more. It's than a, a religion. religion. It's more than yeah. a religion. Yeah, yeah. It's because life. in a religion, even when the priests go and you know rape little boys and things like that, they are shamed. When the football players go and rape young girls and, you know, beat people up or what it. have you. The police take a blow. No, it really is. It's, it's, it's more than religion in terms of abuses. And yeah, it really is high school crazy. football is mm. real crazy shit mm. in a large part of the United States. Exactly. But even with this, even with this environment, the way sports are institutionalized in Australia and the whole notion that the only way you could be a success in Australia is through, is through sports, uh, sporting ability. It's a physical ability thing, to the point where you are taught to swim like an Olympic swimmer as early as possible. And if you can't make the speeds, you're going to be swimming, you know, after school. You're basically going to spend your life in the pool trying to reach those. Nobody is objecting to this? It's because it is so heavily ingrained in the culture. And of course, you know. Um, Americans are obese and all this kind of... There's a strong narrative associated with the fact that the sports culture breeds... It's very, um, you know, it's very, uh, you know, early 1940s, early, late 1930s Germany in terms of the whole vision (laughs) associated with... Well, there is an aspect of that that's that's worthy, but, you know, it it can get crazy, yeah. (laughs) Anyway. That's about, like, my thing about... People being five percent overweight going to fat jail. <laughs> yes. So I think the the motivation. The other thing is that I've never felt that I was Australian. I've never I've never yeah. 
people would say to yeah. me, how long have you been in the country? I just feel that there are, there are yeah. so many kind of normative nonsense narratives. There's this notion, and here I may actually offend some Australian listeners, but <laughs> I'll, make this point, I'll make this point very strongly. There is this notion in Australia now associated with saying sorry. The Aborigines who were taken away from their families um, and put with, um, you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class white families through the 1940s, or 50s and 30s, were known as the Stolen Generation. And through the time that I probably from before I left Australia to when I returned to Australia in, I can't think, 97 perhaps? And sorry, 2007? There was this whole thing associated with how the Prime Minister should say sorry for this group of Aborigines that had been taken from their families. Over this period of time, the quality of life for the Aboriginal population deteriorated dramatically. There were police raids, there were a series of things where the police would just go through their camps. They never lived... I mean, the the whole notion of what happened to the Aborigines is absolutely despicable. But through this period of time, there were a middle-class group of Aborigines that had a narrative associated with the Prime Minister saying sorry, at the same time that all the rural Aborigines that were still stuck out in the townships or whatever basically had a, 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 well, maybe not a theocratic state, but a state that was coming in and basically doing house-to-house searches, confiscating pornography, destroying liquor, you know, just doing... Are there any Aboriginal groups that are still living a more or less traditional life Well, the whole notion of traditional life is completely removed from... They are very much like the the reservation... It's very much like the reservation. Reservation Indians here. Exactly, but the point about Aborigines was not that they... the, The white man at the time took pleasure in scrambling them in basically taking families and putting them in different locations. And the image that you have of an Aborigine in the desert in Australia is completely fictitious. Well, no, I'm not not so much thinking about the desert. Just (laughs) in the north, there's more than desert. Well, there's there's a lot of desert as well. Anyway, through this period of time, and this ultimately also was very, and this is, this is the class element, very much part of the kind of, you know, the kind of folk that would vote Democrat here, the kind of affluent, you know, um, somewhat disconnected from what was going on in the townships, thought, oh, yes, the, the thing the Prime Minister needs to do is say sorry. So the sorry movement <laughs> carried on in parallel to this kind of police state culture. Sorry! Was, exactly. <laughs> My point when I went back was that this whole thing was just, I, I just completely disgusting. Financial reparation, nothing more, nothing less. Let's stop this whole nonsense that you can just say sorry for basically, you know, brutalising and doing things that the UN should be involved with. Sorry just doesn't cut it. But there's this whole narrative in Australia associated with we're just going to do the bare possible minimum and there's there's a narrative culture which has no analysis. So when I went back... Imagine this. I'm sitting in, um, I think, the Sydney Art Gallery with my mother's very affluent bourgeois friends, one of whom has just compiled a list of great Australian speeches, including the sorry speech associated with the Stolen Generation. So he starts on how this was, you know, one of the most moving things ever. And I made the point to him that it was despicable. 
this whole thing was really highly offensive, and it was offensive for me to be an Australian overseas trying to explain to people why saying sorry was more important than actually dealing with the circumstances. I don't think that saying sorry is, you know, something that is bad. I'm not saying that it is the... Uh, that oh, that it probably is. Problem. is. Yeah, right. But if that is the focus compared to everything else that is going wrong, and it drowns out what is going wrong in a kind of fundamental sense... So anyway... Well, is it too late, though? That's the thing. There's really nothing that can be done at this point, is there? I mean, you can give them some money, or you can do a bunch of shit, but I mean... The old culture is gone, or or is it? No, it's it, it's almost completely viscerated. I mean, in terms of traditional languages and things, they just don't exist anymore. Okay, so these so, people are are going to have to get integrated into the modern world somehow. The problem in the U.S. is that there's no. I mean, the only thing that is comparable here, which in itself is problematic and particularly problematic in Australian narrative, is the notion of tribal casinos. <laughs> and while I'm not a fan of tribal casinos, they at least do do something associated, and it's completely corrupt and probably doesn't really achieve much. And it's not going to solve anything. But really. it at least gives money. <laughs> but for now, back. it gives them some money to, exactly. to, to yeah. go out and get drunk with. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> buy some, a new Mercedes. <laughs> there are scholarships that come through these things. As no, well, I'm sure there's so, some good things know, that go. So, you're right. Yeah, but at least it's something. It's something. Yeah. And I think the whole movement associated with sorry was so much a kind of white middle class narrative that it was just embarrassing I mean, What's was, the li- what about ga- is, is gambling uh, legal in Australia? Gambling is very legal in Australia but again gambling just takes money from the poor and puts yeah, it into the state coffers. So, yeah. I mean, you know. Well, or the Indian coffers. Except That's it doesn't in Australia. Now, if I put it in the Aboriginal coffers it would be a very different phenomenon. But I think r- realistically in order to have an honest dialogue, you need to have it in circumstances where the portion of the population that you're supposed to be saying sorry to isn't having police raids and, you know, in, in increasing squalor and poverty. And it was just a surreal narrative to make the, you know, the, the middle class folk feel perfectly comfortable at night whilst these Aboriginal camps continued to be raided and... You know, just yeah. appalling, appalling things that went on. And I think this is the narrative in Australia that there's just a, there's a, an acceptable conversation. And it's part also of compulsory voting. If you have no choice but to vote for a politician, you're going to psychologically lose an ability to just say that they're all corrupt bastards. And the problem is actually the system, not a particular political yeah. party. Yeah. And so, yeah, there, there are a number of reasons that I left Australia, but a kind of groupthink mentality so completely removed from anything that I could see mm. was, you know, a very easy reason. The other thing that I found about Australia was that when I went back most recently, I actually had a really nice time. We have a new listener, a fellow by the name of Jim Gifford, who organised the Model Rail Radio get-together, which was really very, very moving to me. It was on... The a year to the day when my wife's grandmother was killed, and it was just a group of listeners and model rail folk who had put on a barbecue. We had a fellow come over from um, who I went to high school with. Actually, he married a um, one of the local model rail fellows' daughters, and just turned up out of the blue. We had a fellow who was a listener from Hong Kong who came by. Um, it was really quite a phenomenal event. I think, in general, um, 
I don't have any stick with Australians and I, you know, my family's in oh. Australia and these kind of things, but there's a place to be and there's a place to create a, you know, an intellectual career. It just didn't strike me as being the right place. Yeah. Yeah. I have, well, obviously lots of issues with Americans. So, Yeah. I don't, I'm thinking, I don't know where I'm going to end up. I, I, I have certainly no allegiance to America. Mm. I mean, it's been good to me, but it, you know, my tax money pays for things I really am not in support of. So, well, in any case, I, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to go. Or if I'll leave, maybe I'll stay. Do you think? Do you have a sense about where you'd like to be? I, I think I'm probably going to end up, I mean, I'm either going to end up I have a I have I have a split dream of the future. The first is um, owning a second-hand bookstore in either Georgia or Kentucky. <laughs> There's an area in both of them that actually is a really there are some really nice areas in both Georgia and Kentucky, um, and they're on they're on arterial rail routes and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they have seasonal jazz festivals and things like that. I mean, they actually look yeah, really okay. quite yeah, nice. Got it. Yeah. Um, and I think I could quite comfortably own a second-hand bookstore there um, and continue to do what You're I do. You're serious? You really think you can make a living selling books um, in the future? My view is that for a certain community... Books will, and I mean, obviously, I'm going to subsidise it through probably coffee, and you know, my, my wife likes to. My wife was commercial baking. Ah, okay, all right, kind of all right. Well, then, so, yeah, that would make sense then. Yeah, there are a wide variety of things yeah. that could be yeah. done. Right. Yeah, coffee house and bookstore. Mm, exactly. Yeah, but and um, pub potentially so. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there are a number of things that I could do quite comfortably, and I'm with the view that I could. Uh, buy property outright and basically the only cost I would have would be associated with, you know, food and electricity yeah. and things like that. So yeah. I think there's a potential there, but I also have, you know, long-standing interest in returning to the UK. Um, so one of those two locations, I yeah. think. Or maybe both. Potentially. You yeah. never can tell. Yeah. I'm also, I find we were, um, my wife and I went down to uh, Monterey last weekend. We went to the Normally to the Monterey Aquarium, which was quite an interesting experience. But then we spent a bit of time looking out over the coast and um, eating some relatively bland Mexican food as we looked out over the coast. <laughs> and the thing that struck me was that I've had a long-standing interest in building boats and sailing, which I've never really... I've built model boats through my childhood, and even in adulthood I built a couple of model boats when we lived in Las Vegas just to prove that I could still do it. But I have boat building books and just looking out over the bay and the people out on the boats. And I've had various friends. I had a boater participant who lived in a boat. Um, and people actually live in boats in this boat. Oh, yeah, world. I know. I'm, yeah, so, I've had friends who live on boats. With cellular internet and things, I could probably um, probably survive quite comfortably on a yeah, boat. Yeah, yeah. A bit, well, especially if it's a great big boat. <laughs> So, you know, I have all these kind of romantic notions, but I think the yeah. thing about the, you know, the bookstore in Georgia or the UK or these kind of things is that there's, you know, there's, I have no shortage of um, hobbies that could become professions. Yeah. So, you know, I think they're probably the, but the main thing that strikes me, my grandmother is now in her, I think she's 93, 
And she's her men- she's finally slowing down mentally. I mean, she she wasn't that slow at ninety, uh, but she's finally slowing down mentally. And I'm very mindful that there's this whole period where basically because well, depending on what kind of health I'm in, that I'll need to have you know something to settle into. Um, and you know, I can't, I I probably won't work until the end of my life. So, you know, there are these kind of discussions as well, as well that my wife and I are particularly mindful of with her parents slightly less. Well, when parents. you say work, you mean work doing something that you'd only do if somebody paid you a bunch of money. Well, it's you? to do with earning a living, basically. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. So, we, yeah, all right. But, yeah. um, well, who the hell wants to work? Fuck, nobody wants to work. Well, actually, that's very funny because both my father and grandfather... I mean, my my grandfather's case, he did stop working. He had, a, I guess, a decade where he wasn't working. But um, it was a very difficult... Pro- I mean, basically, well, my you grandfather have to, had to... You need to have an, a reason for living. You need to be busy doing things that you find entertaining or useful. But I think, I mean, in both my father and grandfather's case, their professions, they didn't... They don't have external... I mean, my father doesn't have external hobbies. He did kind of try to cultivate... Uh, bird watching when he was in the UK with his <laughs> third wife, which didn't go down particularly well. I now own yeah. all his bird watching books. Yeah. Um, but um, he's he's aside from collecting books, but particularly books in his own particular areas of interest, he really doesn't have a hobby. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he well he hasn't developed his own life. He, he's done his professional life. His life is his professional life. Yeah. Which yeah. When okay, his okay. professional life failed. His life failed. That's too bad. So, well, it's not too late, of course, but. Yeah. Uh, it's that's yeah, it's unfortunate. That's a shitty. Well, I think that's where most people are, aren't well, they? Well, I think the nature. I mean, you've got to appreciate. I mean, my grandfather was a doctor, so he his life was helping people quite fundamentally. Well, his professional. Well, that too, but he also might very well have had a life as a musician too, or well, he you know he or he other was very things big in theater when he was um, you know in his twenties and thirties and forties he was a uh, a long-distance runner in his yeah, so he had late interests. teens and 20s. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, um, I think he was someone who, yes, I mean, he took lots of photographs and he'd do slideshows and these kind of things, but his his passion was his job. Um, yeah. but, and, I mean, I think there are a certain number of jobs that are like that. Yeah, and that's a good thing, I guess, if you've got yeah. those. Yeah, sure. You can, yeah, you'd, yeah, the whole idea of retirement is, is a political economic issue the idea of how you spend your time doing stuff that you find fulfilling would be the the more reasonable that's what we were always talking about is that that's the issue in a reasonable world is survival is not an issue it's not even something to be considered you got that now the issue is how are you going to spend your time what are you going to do with your life yes but um yeah so in terms of places that i have thought about Another area is, um, I mean, I've heard, I've heard, well, almost all good things about uh, Belize as a place to be. Um, and I don't know, I'm trying to think of other places where I've considered... What, what have you heard about Belize? I've heard, um, so I had a friend who went down there who was an artist, actually. He and his um, wife now live in Scotland. Uh, he was originally married to a Budweiser heiress. He was quite a character, actually. He still is. Um, we've had a slight falling out because my wife made a quilt for his newborn recently, and we sent it to him. And the you know the customs in the UK wouldn't 
pass it on unless he paid 70-odd pounds, so I had to wire him the money um, to get the quilt out. But he um, he knew the McAfee fellow who did all the antiviral stuff um, when McAfee was in Belize, and he went down and painted uh, buildings for McAfee in Belize. Um, in fact, I told him, actually, the whole McAfee business associated with the Belize authorities coming after him for murder. And he said it was very nice, and I've had various co-workers and people I've known who've gone down to Belize um, and have had a really nice time there. I mean, I think it's... What does a, that mean? Or really, I mean, basically you can live cheap? Is that what you can the live, deal is? Or what? You can live extremely comfortably for very little money. Um, you can also do things like... And when they, and wait, wait, let me ask you. And when they say extremely comfortably, they're talking about with maids and stuff or what? Potentially so. I mean, I don't yeah. think you, you have to have that, but yes. Um, okay, all right. So that, you're going into a third world country with a little bit of money to a bunch of people who... I mean, that does sound a bit exploitative. The but, thing about Belize is that it's a <laughs> second world country. It's not a third world country. I mean, you wouldn't think of... I found certain areas of Thailand to be third world, but yeah. really, you know, Malaysia was really a second world country, and Belize, well, yeah. I think, is a second world country. Probably, you know, if you look at most second world countries, pretty close to the top end of the second world country. I don't feel comfortable going to third world countries. My mother travelled in Cambodia and Laos and places like that, and has travelled in various areas that I would consider very, you know, developing. Um I don't feel comfortable with that. <laughs> Developing. <And> I, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a good way to say it. But yeah, no, you, I mean, to, to, to be frank, you're right. I, I, you're right. I mean, Belize <laughs> is on the on the fringes of those kind of things. But, um, but I mean, again, th- th- this is what all has to be worked out in the future. We're moving towards a global civilization, mm. and all these issues need to be addressed. Certainly. It's how we're going to handle all of this stuff in a way that works for all of us. So where do you think you'll end up, Heron? I don't have the slightest idea. I've got this sort of fantasy about Hong Kong, hmm. but th- that's silly. I don't. I don't know anything about it. You know, I just like the way it looks. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I don't know. And then there's always you know rural Mexico. There, there's just all sorts of things, and probably you know. Well, I, I just I, I'm not in a position to do anything about it, so I don't really give it much thought. All I know is. I don't. I'm not stuck in any particular place. I can go anywhere, and it, as long as I got an internet connection, hmm. then I don't really care. I mean, obviously, I want to live in a nice, peaceful, beautiful place. You know, <laughs> my father doesn't like Hong Kong. He's going to be returning after another year. Yeah, um, I think he's basically his wife is from mainland China, and there's kind of local racism associated with people from mainland China. Yeah. And I think he's just had enough. I mean, he's um, <laughs> he's been there, he will have been there for three years. He's certainly given it a go. He too, as I do, has has kind of social, social class programming associated with, you know, far too many people with servants and this kind of stuff. So I think he's given it a go. Um, he can't complain about the food. I think he likes the... Um, you know, the freshness and the quality of food there. Mm. Um, but aside from that, yeah, it's just not his environment. Well, yeah, I don't know. And again, that's it's just this crazy idea that's floating around in my head for a while. <laughs> it's, it has no connection to reality at all. Somehow, and I, I kind of get the sense of how this topic came up. 
But um, first thing this morning, my wife gave me a philosophical dilemma associated with morality. She has a, well, not necessarily a problem, but a conflict when she talks to her mother. Mm. Because her mother has this um, relatively standard fundamentalist Christian narrative that God provides morality. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, well, that's understandable why there might be a problem, and, but <laughs> especially if you're a deadhead. <laughs> she put to me, how, how can you actually quantify your morality in the context of conversations that start with the premise, that, you know, from God comes morality? Yeah. Well, you can't. You can't even talk with a person like that about that kind of stuff. And she needs to train her mother uh, on what subjects are possible to talk about and which ones she won't engage in. Because it's a waste of time and gets everybody pissed off. Well, that aside, <laughs> my wife then started quizzing me about my own ideas of morality and whether really it was even a sensible thing to talk about in the context of, you know, our own existences. Yeah. And, you know, the, the kind of, I don't know, kind of moral philosophy 101 associated with whether there was actually something definable or even, you know, talkable on. This is simple in uh, Gendo. It's a reification. There is no such thing as morality. Morality is a word that people use to mean all sorts of different shit, and whatever you decide it means is what it's going to mean in your analysis of the world. And there's nothing beyond that. That's basically what I said to her verbatim. But she said, Mm -hmm. if two people that share this view Mm -hmm. have a conversation, can they have a discussion which is comparable to a discussion on morality, but without the um, kind of presupposition that the, you know, the old morality is there? I mean, if you have a discussion associated with the behavior of a third party or your own behavior, Mm -hmm. is it possible to even draw on, you know, moral philosophy or these kind of things in a, in a Gendo universe? Yeah. And what does morality mean in this context, removed Ah. completely from the previous and old definitions of morality? Yeah. Um, could you ask that question again? So, (laughs) <laughs> um, for example, you you find through life, and I certainly find this through my life, that there are circumstances where what would be traditionally framed as moral questions occur. Well, for instance, you mean like murder. There's a good one, I guess. Well, yeah, murder is an extreme case because I think that's relatively trivial in terms of... Well, but at least we're... we're yeah, okay. All right, yeah. But there, there are other circumstances where, for example, you have three people and you are going to, in your interactions with all of them, um, hurt at least one of their feelings. Oh, yeah, some yeah, regard. listen, you can create all sorts... I mean, yeah, real life is sticky and not subject to simple analysis. Certainly. Ultimately, it seems you just have to go, you know, you do as much analysis as you can, and then you you make the leap. <laughs> yeah. You can't justify, at least I can't justify any moral decisions. Ultimately, it gets down to that's what I felt like doing. That seemed like <laughs> the best thing to do at the moment. Hmm. So, <clears throat> that really disregards morality even as an abstract thing that can be discussed 
amongst like-minded people. Uh, well, I don't know how it could be. What can you say about morality? It's a word. We can talk about how people use that word. Okay, so remove the word aside. If there are circumstances where... You see, again, this is, this is perfect because it actually falls into notions of word usage. Because every possible even... Well, every possible description that would move towards something that could be equated to morality would typically have the word the somewhere <laughs> in it. it. could possibly be. That's another issue to con- be concerned. You know, I'm just thinking about this yeah, kind yeah. of fundamental game. Yeah, yeah you're right. The word the, it's such, it's such a tiny little invisible word, and yet it just pollutes our entire field of thought. It, so, it lies underneath. Uh, it, there are assumptions built into that that go completely uh, unconscious. So the assertions made in the Republic section of our discussions of your journal last week mm-hmm. have an underlying element which could be connected with morality in some sense. Mm-hmm. Notions of health care, notions of uh, rights and responsibilities, yeah. the way in which interactions go through that has some presupposition of... Well, we, yeah, there's a, yeah, there ought to be... Yeah, I think we, you can make these up. You know, one, rules like, uh, you know, you're, if you say you're going to do something, then you probably should do it. That kind of stuff. <laughs> you know? And um, I don't care whether God told us that or not. That just seems... I think you can figure out there's some sort of basic ideas that lead to a, a civilization that works. But can you do it without the word the... Well, no, the word the is useful uh, approximately 6 or 7% of the time. And in these kind of circumstances, these would probably be the exceptional cases where it was acceptable. Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, you have to take those one at a time. You know, an actual case is pretty easy to decide, you know, whether the word the is appropriate. If someone's asking you about what's the true or what's the morality of this situation, that's just bullshit. That, that's, that's a completely inappropriate uh, way to use the word the. It's just wrong. I'm a huge fan of sophistry in leading people to. <laughs> How do you define sophistry? You see, this is interesting because there are two definitions, aren't there? Yes. So, my, at least two. <laughs> my definition of sophistry is using someone else's erroneous arguments to lead them towards the conclusion that you want to present to them. Okay, yeah, that sounds like a good one. (laughs) And I think actually this is very strong in my own sense of morality independent of whatever traditional morality narrative is there, that if I can find someone else's erroneous thinking and lead them to the point where I've explained to them how their erroneous thinking is in their own words, then that to me actually is the definition. If there is a new definition of morality, that exemplifies it. Because there you have the full acknowledgement of the person themselves of their behavior being against something that they themselves would hold as being important. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, all the while being open to the possibility that in fact they're right and you're wrong. Very well. <laughs> yes, I mean the, the thing. The thing about sophistry, by my definition, is that um, you can actually argue uh, falsehoods as truths relatively easily. 
there's no actually that's a relatively easy behavior but well it's what, easy because of reification for one thing because certainly. the words don't mean anything actually certainly. you can you can put them in sort of any combinations and it always sort of sounds like it ought to make sense my view is, and this obviously goes against the uh, mother-in-law's religious perspective, although I've used this quite successfully with fundamentalist religious folk as well, is that if you can give a degree of discomfort within the person based on their... Based <laughs> Wait, on, give a degree of discomfort to them? Well, okay. I mean, I, I've had experiences this week that I probably will, I've decided not to use here, because yeah. they've been quite profound, but also very positive in the light that I'm describing. Yeah. I'm trying to think of examples. So, for example... Um, yeah, sometimes a really, it's good for people to face some very unpleasant things. That, that, there are times when that really is appropriate. Certainly. And I think this is my definition of the new morality, or the, the field that was previously called morality as it exists in the new whatever, the new order, the new whatever it becomes. <laughs> the butterfly. Yes. It's funny because it's ancient Greece. It's, it, is a complete, it is a complete return to the original, you know, the original method. And no, original I don't know method. about the original. And original yeah, right, method. Yeah, yeah, or at least a prior method. Yes, a prior method. Yeah. Um, which I think is very, very striking in my own... Yeah, you know, my own perspective. There is some truth, probably. You know, there's there's always some truth involved in almost anything anybody says. <laughs> so even even the Greeks got a few things right hmm. along the way. <laughs> they poisoned a few people as well. They got a few <laughs> yeah, things right. yeah, yes, yes. So I'm just going through my list of topics here. Ah, here's an interesting one. So um. As I was editing audio in last week's show, how heavily do you use LinkedIn? Uh, I, I, don't, I basically take all the shit I get from it in my mailbox and put it in my trash. Okay. so <laughs> I did notice that you updated your LinkedIn status as assistant to the director, yes. The funny thing about that was... You've, okay, so you've got, you've got to understand the LinkedIn culture. If you don't understand the LinkedIn culture, it's very difficult. LinkedIn is not professional Facebook. I mean, that's the first thing, the uh -huh. first point I should make. Okay. The LinkedIn exists independently of the Facebook social experience. I'm trying to yeah. ebb it in a particular direction. Every time you look at someone's LinkedIn profile, they are notified that you've looked at it. Uh-huh. And... It's also something where I got my job at Netflix through LinkedIn. Really? Uh, LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn showed that I knew a number of people who knew a number of people at Netflix. Okay, yeah, all right. Netflix so, yeah. contacted me, and based on that, yeah, interesting. All, okay, yeah. So I have a view that LinkedIn is actually relatively powerful yeah. in terms of empowering, you know. Potential yeah. employers yeah. to get in contact with you. Yeah, I, uh, I'm aware of it. I, I'm happy pretty much with, with what f I've been able to do with Facebook so far, but actually I'm interested in LinkedIn, and I haven't discontinued my updates from it. So, so the, thing think that, the thing that strikes me is that I want as much as possible of me on LinkedIn. I, I take the view... Well, every possible aspect of you, mean, in case someone out there is looking. Yeah. Well, more than that, because mm -hmm. I'm very mindful that um, the things that I produce with you, for example, or the things that I produce with Noble Ape, or even the stuff that I produce with Model Rail Radio, 
has a potential audience through the people I know on LinkedIn as well. It also describes the phenomena that I've been able to grow a community very, very rapidly using relatively well-refined techniques, which I think isn't... You're talking about model railroad. I am, yeah. Stone Ape is a secondary thing, but model railroad. Well, primarily. no, model railroad. <laughs> model railroad is is a unique thing, though. I mean, that, that, I don't know how much you can generalize that. I mean, oh you, no, you've got, yeah, uh, my, you've got to. My view is putting together an audio podcast on a specific topic and finding an audience for that isn't unique associated with model railroading. The difference with model railroading... No, no, it's finding the audience, though. That's what I'm saying, is the issue is to identify an audience that is sufficiently interested to pursue it. And the abilities to use word of mouth and social networks positively in this line... Oh, yeah, yeah. it's awesome. So, anyway. So, I'm trying to work out a way that I can introduce model rail radio. And as I was going through the podcast last week, the thing that I love is it's the centre of applied epistemology. It's not the centre for applied epistemology. It's, in fact, a joke within a joke. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, I noticed that you uh, yeah, had changed that. No, it, well, no, it, it, as you wrote it originally, it was the centre of applied epistemology. Really? Well, you know, I've, probably, I've changed it back and forth so many times <laughs> that I, I for now it's the centre for applied I know, epistemology. I know, I know. But uh, okay, I'm, so of is, uh, but that's good too. <laughs> I'm creating a rebel center here. Yeah, okay, so, this is a breakaway republic. <laughs> so I, I thought humor. You'll be Satan, and I'll be God. This is yes. perfect. I, I agree, Aaron. <laughs> I agree completely. <laughs> so anyway, little did I know, having put this update in LinkedIn. <laughs> you got an offer from it for a job from somebody? <laughs> it was Karen. I need to. I, firstly, I need to point out that I get job offers maybe three times a week, so that's that's nothing new. Okay, all right. The thing that happened <laughs> was that it. Even though I put it midway down my professional, you got thing, fired from Netflix. Maybe. No, this is this. Although it's close to what happened. All. <laughs> A number of people at Netflix thought that I'd net left Netflix. <laughs> so I'm not going to say that I received a whole lot of emails saying, right on, you're doing the right thing here. But what I will say is that people who I work with, even on a kind of peripheral level, were really pleased to see me when I walked through the hallways. It was a very strange experience because... So, how, so a number of people read that... That yes. you work with, that you see on a daily basis, yes. they saw that, and then when you came in, they had a response to it. Yes. Apparently, it had some impact on it them. It had a very great impact on them. In fact, really? It and the only thing they knew is that it's the center of applied epistemology and that mm. you are an assistant to the director. The assistant or an assistant? I don't remember. Assistant to the director. Oh, I there's no A or... Okay, just yeah. assistant. Good. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Leave it up to people. And I think because I'm, I'm not sure whether... Uh, clearly, my, a number of my coworkers didn't get the joke. <laughs> they were looking it up on the internet, trying to figure out where is the center of it. Heron, I, I need to inform you that now on LinkedIn, there is a center of applied epistemology. It got enough traffic to actually generate an entity on LinkedIn. You need to get on LinkedIn and become a director for the center now. <laughs> The other thing is... This is how reality is created. The other thing is, is 
is that people want jobs at the centre. <laughs> right, they're, they're looking for handouts. So, no, no, they're not looking for handouts. They'll earn their keep at the centre. Okay. Um, well, good, that's right. We need some iOS apps. Yes. So, uh, you know, yeah, okay, good. All right. Well, let's get, you're my assistant, let's get to work. That's, that's exactly my feeling. <laughs> the, the other thing is that I was on Google+, and Bob Mottram had started a thread because he wants a job at the centre. He wants to be... Um, the vending machine attendant at the center of applied epistemology. <laughs> what are they going to vend in that machine? It, 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 this is you as the director should be able to make that decision, Heron. Oh, okay, all right, we'll figure it out. Probably a various uh, entheogenic drugs. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, whatever. Yeah. Yes. I'm, or I'm potato f- chips, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so so the center has has been reborn, Heron, in the past week. Well, I think it's been born. It never really was. Well, it was sort of born before. Yeah, well, I guess you could say reborn. That's yes. cool. All yes. right. Well, we need some uh, We need some apostles. Yes. Or something like that. I'm now really scared of updating anything on LinkedIn. I mean, the response <laughs> that I received. I, How I many people? Well, wait, you said the people at work. We're glad oh. to see you. So, I mean, what did people say? I mean, did people approach you and, and so you need, comments or one, what? One thing you need to understand about Netflix is that there are, there's a very high turnover. And most of the people, I'm pleased to say, are people that are going to startups or other jobs. Um, I mean, people, you know, people are fired yeah. as well. But a good number of the people that leave Netflix... Well, they're hiring some fairly interesting people then. Mm. You know, I mean, if they're hiring people that leave and they continue, you know, then they're... That's kind of interesting, actually. Or, a, are they just stupid? Or there's a or phenomenon the, at Netflix associated with people that get to a particular technical level and then leave, and I think this is pretty well the same throughout the Bay. That was the feedback that I received through the week was that people had naturally assumed that you, you'd run through the cycle and you're out. <laughs> that I reached that technical level and that there was nowhere for me to go but to the center. Except center. to the center of applied epistemology. And the other thing is that it had... Did any of them know what the word... I mean, did they have to look it up or did they already know you the see, word? Or? The funny thing was that... Um, I don't... It, this is the thing. It's a joke that continues to this day, Heron, because I don't think anyone... I don't think of my co-workers, aside from the fact that it sounded like the kind of place that I would go. Yeah. I don't you think don't think they even bothered to look it up? <laughs> I think it just sounded, it sounded like the kind of place that I would go, and I don't think anyone actually, because they would have gotten the joke if they'd looked it up, I think. Maybe, hopefully. Well, maybe not. I think it seems like a perfectly reasonable name to me. I mean, I'm glad that it does exist now, because I think that's a damn good name. That's what Gendo is. It's applied epistemology. Mm. The thing that struck me in particular was I work with a lot of people in highly dependent technical roles where they're dependent on my work and to a certain extent I'm dependent on their work. And they were the greatest sign of relief when they saw me. And that was actually one of the beautiful things about this week. They they were all good, you didn't quit. (laughs) You're still here. (laughs) <laughs> well, there's still some hope. And some of them I actually jested with associated with this because they were so overwhelming. And these are, you know, these are senior management types and, you know, a wide variety of people. And so all these people are looking, looking and paying attention to, to what's LinkedIn. going on on LinkedIn. Exactly. Okay. I, it is really a soap opera. I do the same thing. I mean, I'm always really curious when people move around. And it's one of these things yeah. that's really quite striking that... You know, amongst these companies, people do frequently either go to other companies. Sure, or there is 
a culture sort of, there of, exactly. yeah, of exactly. connections of people. Ah, yes. The network of uh, people that, Professional. You, yeah, that you know. Mm. Yeah. The thing, one of the funniest emails that I received, there was a fellow who was, who, who is a multimillionaire. I mean, he doesn't need to work at Netflix. But he was just, he was someone I worked with. He's really, really smart. And he was, as the term is used, let go. But he was let go mainly because he had just gotten sick of, you know, what he was doing fundamentally. And I've kept in contact with him. And he's a fascinating fellow just because you very rarely see someone who's a contemporary of yours who, through his own tenacity, has become independently wealthy. And he made a series of the right decisions where the rest of us made the wrong decisions, basically associated with getting involved in high-risk startups and just being successful through them. He contacted me through the week. And the funny thing when he contacts me is he's very... He, he and I hit it off. We worked together for about eight months. And he's always very mindful of the next place that I go. He said to me, quite frankly, then wherever you go, I'm going to follow you. But he's basically burnt a series of bridges, which means that he can only do bit work, you know, in, in the valley so far. He spent a bit of time, as, as we call it, in the fruit factory. And I think he just, as, as most, as some, let's say, as some thinking people, uh, would, he would just went nuts there and, you know, left after, I think, six months worth of contract work there. But no, he was one of the people that got in contact with me instantly. Like, literally, <laughs> 15 minutes after the post went up, he must have some, he must have some automated system. And, and what, was his, uh, what was his comment, or what was he interested in? He, he wanted to know exactly what I was doing at this new job. And, you know, <laughs> really? Was, well, really, that's a good question. Yeah, what the hell are you doing at the Center for, for Applied Epistemology? I just pointed him to the podcast and said, this is what I'm doing. So. <laughs> Well, I have this audio burden um, that yeah that manifests itself in this. But yeah, I think I'm very mindful, and I've posted a couple of Noble Ape updates, and it has like a feed for you know general posts as well. Most of that is used by kind of middle managers to post the latest news associated with either Netflix or Google or Apple or wherever the other where these managers are, and it really is kind of boring. It's just very you know oh this is you know the what the so-and-so has done, and this is what so-and-so has done. Yeah. Have you seen the latest content from, you know, my view yeah, is... Yeah, I don't even know why I'm on there, but I know I'm on there, and I get updates, email updates yeah. about stuff, but... I think it's gameable. I'm interested in gaming it, and actually... No, I, yeah. I agree. If, if, it could be, if it can be exploited, let's do it. <laughs> my experience for the week is that, yes, I need to find some way of describing model rail radio in ways that are very... I mean, truth be told, I, my resume is a series of relatively nondescript descriptions of work that I've done previously at companies that I'm not particularly, you know, don't really care about yeah. publicising that I've worked for them. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very good at writing neutral work descriptions associated with work that I've done previously. In the case of Model Rail Radio, it is a social phenomena. I think is something that is very interesting and certainly makes me feel very passionately about the way in which you, you know, you create a, a community relatively rapidly. Honestly, I think we can do this with Stone Ape too, Heron. I mean, I don't think we can get to a hundred thousand, you know, in three and a half years. But well, I maybe. think we can. I think we can generate an intellectual community, and we have done so 
slowly. I think I, I agree with you. I think it's a small, but I think it's a growing community. That's mm. the thing is that it, it is a small percentage. I can say my sense is it's between two and five percent if it's that much. But ten years from now, it might be fifteen percent. Mm. You know, uh, now is the time to start. You know, there are people out there who give a shit about this stuff. I think there are more than you have previously anticipated. Well, I hope you're right. (laughs) My view also is that I may have actually, through self-selection, found a far higher percentage through the things that I do. I think there's, certainly in terms of the potential users... Yeah, yeah, the people you hang around with are, are in one sense, ideal customers for Gendo. Mm. You know? I don't hang around with people. So, yeah, I, I just see this sort of general population. You see a highly select group of intelligent, informed, technically savvy people. Yeah, th- that's an ideal customer. Mm. I'm in no way in disagreement with you here, and I, I, yeah, I, I heartily agree. I think the format to present it to people is something that I'm very mindful of. So some of these recordings instantly I put on LinkedIn. And some of these recordings I haven't put on LinkedIn intentionally because I think <laughs> they might spook them. Uh, no, it's just because the, it's actually to do with the first ten minutes of the recording. Oh. I'm, I'm very mindful of the idea that in order to get someone to listen, oh. you need to have something that catches them very. Quickly. Yeah, you got to get them right up front. Yeah, good, good idea. And some of these shows come together in that fashion, and some of them don't. And that isn't a uh. negative thing against the ones that. No, don't. it's just it's just a marketing issue. That's exactly. all. You've just yeah. got to be mindful of, yeah, of the format. You no, know, you're right. It's not it's not a moral thing. It's just about. What are you doing this for? <laughs> you know, do you want it? And sometimes you may go ahead with the, the thing that doesn't have a, a snap to it. You exactly. Know? And yeah. that, that, that as much belongs as the ones that, that snap. Yeah, right. Yeah, but right. The, but you want to maximize the snaps. Well, to a certain extent. I mean, my view is that. Um, well, that's where we're here yeah. for. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. My view is that if it's one in three or one in five, it doesn't really matter. At least there's one that will actually fit that, that yeah, role. Yeah, so the yeah, frequency I, yeah. is less important. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think the important thing is that I'm having fun talking with you. Very good. <laughs> Ditto. Ditto. That, that does it for me. <laughs> so we've moved to the part of the evening where we can probably discuss the project previously and probably continuing to be called Heron and Squish. <laughs> This is this yeah. is a fan favorite topic, and I think we're going to be expanding this further. Are you, in Squish. Mm-hmm. All right, this is good. I can't wait to see what this is going to be. Like. So I developed a synopsis for Heron and Squish last Saturday after I finished the. Could editing. this be a reality, a cable TV show? No, no. Okay. I haven't taken it that far. Although I have considered Heron and Squish the musical, which was highly popular on Facebook as well. But I think initially it's going to be a documentary. And the format of the... So th- th- there are kind of competing ideas in this, but I'll give you the first pitch. In 2011, I published a chapter in a book called Origin of Mind, which described our conversations and the development of an aspect of Noble Eight by Bob Mottram based on our conversations. I think... The, I need to read that. Yes, yeah, so I can get it to you. Yeah, I, I, please I do. Will. I certainly yeah. will. Yeah. Um, I think there is there is a three part story within this that could be told in the form of a documentary and expose 
a wide audience to your work. Let me give you the pitch. Okay, let's go, man. So Let me hear it. The first part is is you and Gendo, and it's from a kind of introduction associated with your early development of it, some discussion associated with what went on through the 80s to the present day and how you've utilised the internet to have basically the same conversation maybe 800 times to a point where <laughs> you have... This could be satirised in Gendo and Squish or it could be taken seriously. Where... where <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Where, where you have developed a particular <laughs> rapporteur where you you have a strong sense of the need, but the ideas basically are continuing to percolate. That's the that's the first third where we get a definition of that. The second third is an introduction, perhaps, to um, our introduction. Some discussion associated with. Um, you know, what simulation means, what computation means, and some introduction to how this thing mapped into No Blade. And potentially also uh, Bob Mottram's experience actually implementing this idea uh, with reference to how it's highly... A number of these things are highly applicable to computer simulation, and this can be introduced in, you know, various introductory simulation discussions particularly because a lot of this maps onto the natural world so you can use natural world footage rather than simulation footage uh, but it gives a relatively strong narrative the final which also basically features you know bob mottram's analysis and potentially a number of your acolytes analysis uh, and some general discussion associated with the applied use of Gento here in the case of simulation and then the final component is ultimately some kind of reaffirmation associated with your, you know, the small number of folk that are kind of continuing these ideas. Now, it could be cut in such a way that really it was your experience, maybe some acolytes' experience, noble ape, Bob Mottram. But I think there's an additional component to it which gives it some kind of conclusion, particularly associated with the way people are taking this, these ideas and um, going into their general life. I think there's a woman called Terry, if I remember correctly, yeah. um, who is quite active. Um, and I think there are a number of folk internationally who could be part of that. I mean, Tom Vine, obviously. Yeah, there's a bunch of people mm -hmm. who think this stuff is interesting mm -hmm. and are thinking about it and talking about mm -hmm. it. So, in a Kickstarter's context, the cheapest possible Kickstarter is to get you and me together. Then, cumulatively, you start introducing these other <coughs> characters, either by sending them <laughs> video cameras and instructions associated with how to conduct a, an interview, perhaps in addition with Skype, but so that they get some HD quality footage. And then, alternatively, with actual you know people going to locations and conducting interviews and forming this thing together... But I see it as a Kickstarter starting at about $500, expanding to however much people want to fund it, with the view that the basic... And we're producing a video here. We're so producing probably a... 30 a, minute? No, I would think uh, an hour and an hour. 15 oh, hour. to an hour and 45 minute documentary. Holy shit. 
Okay. With the view that you That's yourself... That's a big undertaking. Yeah. Well, I think, actually, we can probably capture... You can start with a five-minute one? No. <laughs> that's that's what you put up on Kickstarter. That's the pitch. The five-minute one is the pitch. Ah, to get the people ah, to put in money. Ah, yes, okay, good, very good. I like that. Yes. So that's my vision for Heron and Squish. This is the Mark I vision. It obviously has some rough edges, and it's not in any way. Yeah, but it's a good start. It's a good start. Yeah, it's a good starting place. It it shows your ideas in application, in software, and in people's lives, and I think it gives an interesting, you know, broader narrative associated with you as a character, our interaction, and your interaction with these other people as well. What is the overall? This this whole thing is an hour and something minutes long. Mm And what is, the, what is the message that people are going to come away with? Firstly, they will have a very strong introduction to Gendo. They will have a very strong introduction to the impact that it's had on your <coughs> life. And also, they will have an introduction to how it is not just, you know... See, what I want them to get out of this mm-hmm. film is... And I don't want an in- introduction to Gendo. I want them to get an experience... That the voice in their head is not who they are. Yes, isn't that the... I mean, that's the point. Yeah, I want them to, at some point, in the process of watching this movie, stop the movie, sit there and go, what the fuck? (laughs) And be silent for an hour while they process the fact that the voice in their head is not them. That's that's what I hope to add. I I don't suppose that'll happen too often. So here's how you frame that. The introduction is perhaps someone like Terry, perhaps someone like Tom Vine, perhaps some third party speaking the voice in the head while they are going about their general lives. And then perhaps taking from three or four people Mm. this notion that this is the the pre-Stonian existence. Let's Mm. explore the movement Uh, into the post-Stonian existence. Uh, Okay. All right. All right. I got it. So, so you want to, this is kind of like a drama. You, you no, got, it's a documentary, but it's a documentary in the form that illustrates the points that you're trying to describe. Well, anyway, there are little dramatic segments anyway. Exactly. Say, in, in which some guy is sitting there at Starbucks going, Jesus Christ, what the fuck am I going to do? No, you have the voiceover. You have the voiceover yeah. narrative of them thinking that, and you basically yeah, have right. the concatenate of all these voices inside yeah, the heads, yeah, okay. even though there are people that are just sitting yeah. there not actually speaking. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> Yeah. I know. I think this is a good project, Harry. No, I mean, no, I, no. I, I, I well, yeah, but it, yeah. It, well, it's a great idea. What we need is a script. There are scriptable elements to this, but I think the if you view this as something that needs to be tightly scripted, you will probably actually lose some of the elements that I want to capture. Well, if yeah, well, that's an expensive way to do it, though. I agree with you. It's just that if you script it, uh, then you you don't have to waste any extra footage and stuff. Otherwise, you end up with a, a huge thing and then doing it all in editing, and that may work. But that's a big project. It's a big editing project. Well, except it's actually considerably the the problem is the level of professionalism associated with the scripting process. And what you can do is actually make something sound very, well, blatantly scripted. And I think that's the difficulty here. The, we, you don't want something that looks or appears to be blatantly scripted. Well, you want not necessarily. I, well, I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, I, I think what we want is something that's going to work. True. 
And and whether there may be part of it that we just say, look, the next ten minutes, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> okay, well, you know, but blatantly I mean, scripted, and then, but I mean, it is. It has to be scripted. They're watching a fucking video on YouTube. The de- documentary form, as it is done in general, is not as heavily scripted as I think you are talking. Oh no, no, no! I know when you when you're interviewing people and you know what their point of view is, you're not going to script that. You just you want three minutes of this guy talking about exclusivity or something. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. But I'm just saying, when I mean script, I mean what is what are the major points of this video? What are they meant to get across, and how specifically does this footage bring about this state of mind? That kind of scripting. What are we doing here? How is this video going to actually have an impact on people's lives? There's a billion fucking videos out there. You know? True. I mean, what we want is for this thing to go viral. True. <laughs> the final point associated with Heron and Squish is it's not just going to be you and me. It's going to require a cast of, well, you know. Tens. T- tens, perhaps. But maybe <laughs> yeah. less than ten. Maybe, but, maybe handfuls. So, anyway, this goes out to the broader listenership of the Stardate podcast. If you feel that you are interested in participating in this, the most, <laughs> the most important yeah. thing is location. Um, and this is something that I'm very mindful of. I have worked with um, remote documentary filmmakers previously. Um, I mean, the last time I did was in 2000. But the techniques associated with high-quality video and talking to video and these kind of things, thankfully through Skype, um, you do get some of these, you know, you do get the yeah. ability to do these kind of interactions with a high-quality video camera on location, at least filming the footage. So I am mindful of ways in which you can save money with these kind of projects, but also I think there's some element of location because really what I'd like to see is um, as much squished collaboration on this as possible. Even oh, though you want to get footage from people all over the world. Mm. Uh, well, maybe we should ask them to use... Most, uh, most phones now do HD video. Here's the problem, Heron. They yeah. do to different qualities and they do to different the quality that you get through video through phone you need the tripod setups for example my wife has built various uh iphone clips that clip into tripods and yeah right yeah they work great well they kind of do but i mean there's a my view is probably there is about you know a thousand dollars worth of video cameras that would give far superior. Oh yeah! If you footage. want to squat and spend the money, yeah. No, no, you, no, no, no. Here's, really, the, here's the point, yeah. Aaron. Kickstarter. Yeah. Ah. Oh, so we're, we're gonna we're gonna provide various people with cameras. Yes. Okay. All right. So, yeah. Well, that would solve that problem. Yeah. There are plenty of relatively inexpensive cameras that do a great job. So mm. yeah. So the idea is that there are many tiers here, and we set it up as a Kickstarter. How many? How many? How much do these cameras cost? What? Uh, five hundred bucks? Yeah, or something? I think you could do it quite comfortably for five hundred. Yeah. And I think particularly if you want 1080p YouTube yeah, quality. Yeah, it's got. Yeah, might as well. Yeah. yeah. The thing about Kickstarter is that you start at five hundred with you know potentially one of these cameras and a train ticket or something. Yeah, and then you move towards 
however much with potentially you know additional budget costs and you, you can factor all this stuff in yeah, I based see. on yeah. the Kickstarter. Yeah, that's that's where the script is. What the fuck kind of movie are we actually going to make? And this is what you need up front, basically, <laughs> yeah. in order yeah. to describe that. And I think yeah. that's part right. of actually the five yeah. minute piece as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's, but again, this is a <laughs> this is a major undertaking. <laughs> uh, in terms of the projects that I to do, actually do it, I mean, it, you know, is well. Anyway, yeah. I mean, I think I think it is a major undertaking, but relative compared to you know some of the projects that I've done. Yeah, yeah. For you, it huge. may not be a big deal. For yeah. me, this is a major undertaking. It is, the only clearly. thing I've ever done even comparable to this is uh, you know building the keyboard. Mm-hmm. You know, finding the people, hiring them, and overseeing the building of that thing. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm kind of proud of that, you know. Mm-hmm. But this, I mean, to actually, I, I, anyway, in doing that, I learned there are just all these real details that you end up, that you hadn't anticipated, that uh, that have to be gotten through, <laughs> you know. Certainly. So, no, this sounds like fun to me. <laughs> yeah, I think the full stack is is going to be very interesting, particularly associated with once you've got the certain. And what of are we going to do? Thing. We're making a movie, mm-hmm. I mean, or a video about Gendo, about Heron Stone, about uh, the transformation of the planet. Uh, what your piece of the transformation of the planet with applied examples of people who this has had an impact on and how it has changed. This is beginning to sound a little bit like a commercial. No, I think the, <laughs> the, the, there are certain elements that, um, well, I mean, every, every look, every documentary on someone and an idea tends to be on some level yeah, sounding yeah, like a yeah, commercial. Yeah, the yeah, difference right. is that you're exposing people that have never had contact with this yeah. idea. Well, yeah, and we don't have to emphasize me necessarily. Mm. You know, I mean, I can be in it, certainly. I, I think I'm probably an important part of it. But it doesn't have to look like it's me. It just I'm just, you know, a guy who is heavily involved in it, mm. you know, along with other people. And you'll be as heavily involved in this as I am in the making yes. of this. Yeah. So, you know, maybe you're going to, maybe you should be the narrator. There's potential, well, I mean, the, there, there are two possibilities there. Thankfully, the narrator is the last part. I mean, the, the, narr- the narrator may be there for only a third of the yeah, total yeah, footage. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. It depends on what the footage looks exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah, right. And I'm very, very mindful of. And that. what kind of footage you, you you mentioned? Terry and Tom and uh, Andrew. There are several other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're proposing what to send them a camera mm-hmm. and have them do what? Well, there are two parts to this. The first is whether they participate in the initial prior to your well the the um, dramatization to use your term of prior to their interaction with you. Uh, they could give that just as a, a verbal to camera. Um, there are ways... I mean, this builds itself based on, firstly, their capabilities, and also if, <laughs> if, if they have regional yeah. communities. Yeah. If there are two people in roughly the same area, then it makes these things a lot easier. Um, wait, wait a minute, say that again, I missed If that. there are two people in these... So, for example, Terry lives in L.A., doesn't she? No, she's in Arizona. In Arizona, okay, but still close enough. Close enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the other folk who are in, you know, Germany and the UK, 
you know, it depends, it depends on a wide variety of factors. One can't start scripting this until one has a budget, and if Kickstarter provides the budget, yeah. then well, really but you need we need to a script. The yeah, well, we, yeah, we probably need to have several scripts at several different levels. Yeah. To me, the whole thing is about the script. I mean, what is it that we actually want? I'm, t- I'm thinking of Terry. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Mott's in Germany. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of people, and I'm, I'm thinking, what would I do if somebody sent me a camera? And told me what? What well, am I supposed to do with this fucking camera? Then? Part of this is Skype interaction, so it's uh-huh. not just that we send them a camera; it's that we um, firstly give them documentation. We send them the camera. We conduct interviews over Skype with them, where we make sure we do video Skype if need be. We make sure that the camera is set up at the right angle. You can do trimming around these cameras as well, which means that if their shot isn't quite exactly on. You can do post-production, basically, yeah, right. to get the yeah. shot to line up. Yeah. I mean, there are a series of techniques that you can and, use And all to that stuff remotely. isn't necessarily that important, is it? I mean, I mean, a certain rough edge on it uh, isn't necessarily a bad thing. It depends. I mean, there's, there's rough edge, and then there's at, a, at an angle, you know? <laughs> I mean, no, I know. It's, it's debatable as yeah. to what's... Uh, but I'm just saying... I mean, I, I guess I'm really tolerant about stuff like that. I'm interested in the storyline. Your, your history with regards to the Zeitgeist movement indicates this very strongly. My view <laughs> is that um, the Zeitgeist movement is the lowest possible bar to the kind of stuff that I'm interested in producing. Well, it's just, it's, but it's a great thing for a bunch of people. I don't, so, I don't need, feel need to put that down. I'm you not know? necessarily it's putting it thing. down. I'm saying that this is, this is, this is what... It's I'm, baby steps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Yeah. So I have a relatively strong vision associated with this thing, and I'm more than happy to put it out into words. And really, I'd also like the feedback from listeners. Um, now, through the part that I'm talking about associated with Noble Ape and the narrative engine and the impact that you've had on that, that has a degree of formality. It relates to a... Um, a German publishing house that, you know, the, the chapter was published in and it relates to my longstanding um, friendship and respect for Bob Mottram, who has also kind of taken on your uh, particular vision and embodied it in software. So, I mean, that is the component that... And I also, I think there's... In terms of your communication and the ability to get your ideas out to the broadest possible audience, I think there's a certain technique that will need to be held through that footage and i'm certainly very mindful of the project in this in this kind of broader context um, but, but like I, say, I i this is again your baby you know this podcast has been your creation and uh you are the producer man that's 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 what you do apparently Apparently so. Apparently you are the producer. <laughs> and we're still talking. <laughs> well, I understand the need for that because I'm not a producer. Mm. The thing that struck me associated with the um, journal formatting, what I did associated with kind of collating that we've done one cycle of, has been very, very positive. The feedback that I've received, both from yourself and others, associated with that makes me realize that... Um, I can kind of continue to do that with your work. I mean, I may get it terribly wrong at some stage, but I think... Pro- listen, of- I probably got it wrong, so it's okay if you do. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm, I'm relatively mindful that, um, you know, the feedback that I've received so far has been quite positive associated with this um, aspect. Um, Interesting. I'm interested in hearing... I'm a little listeners. embarrassed about the whole thing, 
actually. <laughs> well, here's my question to you, Heron. I mean, through your sabbatical, your these kind of projects are basically part of that time, aren't they? I mean, being necessarily pitched, but being, you know, prompted and you know, not necessarily cajoled, but, you know, these kind of things are the kind of things that should be coming through your sabbatical with the view that you can choose whether or not you, you know, you work with them or these kind of things. So, I mean... Yeah. Well, that sabbatical idea is, again, just another bunch of words, you know. <laughs> it's just... I'm at I'm at this place where I I just don't know. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's clear to me that I'm wrapping up one period of my life that that I spent a lot of time on and and that I I need to do something different now. But I'm not exactly sure what or how. I mean I I mean I I sort of know, but but I mean just exactly how to maximize you know, and do this as efficiently and as effectively as I can, uh, I, I'm not, you know, I don't know. And that's what I'm taking this time off for, is basically to just sort of rethink everything. So I spent um, some time scouting locations um, <laughs> in, in your part of the world. Uh, because I think, obviously, your interaction through the, these locations and these kind of um, you know, these kind of things are visually important. Do you get a sense that you would prefer to be filmed in, you know, particular locations in your part of the world, perhaps going back to the college, you know, where you gave your talks or these kind of things? Oh, that, I, I haven't given that any thought. I don't really give a shit one way or another about that okay. stuff. Yeah, whatever you think works will be fine. I mean, there's some... I'll probably do it the cheapest way possible and just shoot me over Skype. No, 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 that is, that is the antithesis of what I want to do with this. Okay, oh, you want to make it real personal and, and uh, show me as a real guy, huh? Yeah, I don't think there's any harm in that. I mean, the whole well, notion except of Heron, it's not true. The whole notion of Heron and Squish is about Heron and Squish. Yeah, okay, well, whatever you want to do is okay with me. Like I say, I, I you know, whatever. I'm up for it. <laughs> the challenge here, listeners, is will Heron and I be on speaking terms by the conclusion of this? Yeah, project? who knows? <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah, in Squish. See, I, I, I don't see the need for that. I, what's the point of that? In, people, in the Matrix is what's. What well, here's the, here's the thing: you can introduce that through the format, but most people live in Squish. Your audience, well, your audience in terms of new people to these yeah, ideas, yeah, okay, predominantly okay, live in Squish. Okay. All right, all right, okay, all right. Well, listen, I, like I say, I, I'm just throwing out my ideas here. Um, I don't know. Well, that's the issue: is how how do we appeal to the you know? I mean, that's the point. Is to, this isn't for everybody? It's clear. It is for a certain percentage. The question is, what percentage? And we want to speak to the people. You know, just under that edge, too, you know, there's a certain segment of the population that is sort of ready for this stuff. And we want to sort of make the message fit those people. I mean, do you agree? I mean, does that make sense? Exactly. But I actually think the audience is larger than you have previously anticipated. How big do you think it is? I think you're dealing with... I have a unique... You're talking about among the people you know, No, right? let me start again. Let me start again. <laughs> Through my employer and the work that I have done with my employer, I have a unique perspective on the people that watch documentaries. 
And uh, through those uh, experiences, uh, I see. Okay, uh, I can tell you that if uh, the first ten minutes is in a particular format, you uh, could get forty percent of the audience that usually watches documentaries. <laughs> Hook, line, and sinker. Moving on. Oh, now see that's that's valuable information. Exactly. That so, is valuable. And it's critical associated with the format. And I okay. know. All right, so we've got two issues here. We've got to create the first five, ten minutes so that it works. And then we have to pack the whole thing so that it works. Mm-hmm. I Let's should start. also point I'm out. Ready. I should also point out, and this is subtle. And, and, no it, way- and do I need to be the fucking. See, I'd really like to avoid the guru I- issue. I mean, is there some way we can do this without painting me as the fucking guru? Gurus don't have humility. I think you need to you need to have some, which you do. I mean, you have some humility, whether or not you choose to acknowledge it in general no, I, conversation. Shit, I, I'm a humble. I'm this, that's one of my greatest principles, man. Is is I'm so fucking humble. I, that's one of my greatest assets. <laughs> <laughs> so, Aaron, I think I think this is framed. I mean, this is framed the project, and certainly as I was editing the last audio. And thinking about this and putting this stuff down, my view is that there are stages to this thing, obviously. There is the initial five-minute pitch stage. There's the leave-it-to-Kickstarter's phase. And then there's the whatever has assembled itself through Kickstarters. (laughs) Yeah. So yes, I mean I think this is a this is a project that I think if you think this makes sense and, and, and can actually be done, I'm I'm on board. Very good. And I put out to the listeners that if they would like to participate as well, now is the time to get in contact. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. their feedback and their participation will be integral to this. See, that'll be interesting to see how many people respond. I know that I've influenced some people, but I honestly don't know how, I mean, whether it's five or 50. You know? I mean, I know I've had an influence on people. I get emails from people. I get, uh, you know, all sorts of messages from people thanking me. And thank you. I love that shit when I get it. <laughs> and uh you know but uh, i don't know how many people there are out there and you may put out the call and there isn't anybody there <laughs> so the phenomena on kickstarter is very very interesting and i've been following documentaries on kickstarter recently i haven't been putting in my hard-earned coin although i did receive some pralines from one of the projects <laughs> that i funded <laughs> Texas pralines are not like pralines anywhere else. They're kind of gritty and interesting, but I did at least receive the pralines. Yeah, you're um, not, not, not your favorite pralines. No. My no. wife as well took a bite out of one and said, hmm. Well, she, that's one way to do pralines. <laughs> she actually consulted with one of her quilting friends who's originally from Texas, and yes, apparently Texas pralines are an acquired taste. So good to know on that front. Um, the other interesting thing I found out about Kickstarter is it's impossible to get a refund. So basically, once <laughs> okay, you put yeah. the money in, yeah, which you, I shouldn't it. actively not, advertise yeah. this fact, but because this is going to be a project that we're definitely going to do, we're not sailing off into the sunset with the money in this circumstance. <laughs> but um, the, the yeah, it is a, a very interesting phenomenon associated with Kickstarter um, because the more I read about it, the more we've. Just... Well, so this is Kickstarter point eight five. Yes. Oh, you know? it's just uh, we're just beginning to figure this shit out. You know? Yeah, the next guy will come along and it'll work better hopefully so (laughs) hopefully so
I lamented, I think. You know, let me just say, I'm sorry. Let me just say that what a wonderful universe it is we live in. I'm increasingly feeling that way. It's just such an amazing, I mean, really, when you consider the fact that there might well not have been anything at all, (laughs) you know, that we got all this shit to deal with. This is just fucking amazing. I love it. Okay, go on. Yeah, I'm just going to I'm just going to riff on that for a minute <laughs> and and say I find myself occasionally being very amazed at just things like having eyes, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, like you can see. It just astonishes me. I yeah, mean, yeah. you you can spend periods of time just riffing on <laughs> yeah. on the fact that you can see and the whole notion of, I was watching um I'm watching something on Tom Vine's Facebook page, actually, associated with, uh, what's the fellow's name? Uh, Rupert Sheldrake. And Rupert Sheldrake's morphic resonance stuff. But he talked about the ability to, to know you're being watched, which is one of the most interesting... I, 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 mean, I like Sheldrake in general because even a lot of his, although a lot of his stuff is very on the you know, pseudoscience end of, of science. He at least likes to step on either side of the border, basically, and expose that there is a border. And he's playing well. He's just, yeah, he's doing great work. <laughs> so the thing, yes, the thing that struck me about it was the whole idea of what eyes mean in the context of existence. And then I kind of riffed yeah. on that thought for a, a good few seconds there's a lot of interesting stuff that, yes, we should be very, very thankful of. Paramecium are, are basically, it's us, except for them, it's just either ew or ooh. <laughs> you know? And they, they have a gradient and from one end to the other, and as they move through, they respond. Their universe gives them an ew or an ooh, and it automatically directs it towards the ooh. <laughs> But you have to, this is the, so I've talked to uh, a paleobiologist about this. I talked to him about five years ago. I actually stayed with him and his family in July last year, which was really very nice. We had a number of really good, deep discussions, including, mm. including he teaches global warming. He teaches yeah. like environmental science aspects. And I said to him, you know, I know things are going to get a lot worse. I know that basically even the, Stuff that the you know the strongest um, global warming folks say in the media are still things are going to get far worse than even the the worst things that they're describing. I said, but I grew up on science fiction. I have this view that the dark future is probably the most likely future. So you know, let it burn, let the earthquakes happen because there's nothing that you know these humans. Yeah, well, are we're going to have to deal with it. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. It is. We just yeah. have to be. We just have to be in a hyper-aware state that this is going to occur. Well, anyway. whatever is going to occur, we need to be prepared to deal with it. Yes. He, That's the scary part, man. It, it, yeah. and my initial conversation with him six-odd years ago related to this whole notion of uh, irking, I think is the term he used, which, as you describe, is ooh or ooh. Um, and the point that he made through that is that this is the origin of intelligence, that really everything built from... Uh, you know, language, uh, avoidance of pain, um, you know, no. societies, all these things emerged out of this motion, as you describe it. Um, but there is probably, there are subtleties to this 
that we cannot consider through, I guess, traditional linguistic means. And he uses computer simulation in order to understand a kind of first principles approach to movement. I mean, this is what a paleobiologist does. They look at trace fossils Mm -hmm. and they try to work out the critters that are making these fossils. How are they doing that in the kind of, you know, Occam's razor application to these critters in, you know, millions of years ago. Just absolutely astonishing stuff. He's a fascinating fellow, but yes, exactly the point you made, but he describes it very much in the kind of origins of intelligence and also, obviously, the Precambrian period was still very, very interesting for early intelligence. Obviously, the Cambrian period was just like the ultimate feast, basically. Yeah, leading, well, was... leading up to that, still there were aspects of kind of things being... Well, that was that setting the formed. rules exactly. for the next step. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. up until us. You know, setting yeah. in rules for all the steps. See, that's the thing is, I think we're at the next. The next step is is as big as the one from single cell to multicellular life. That's the kind of uh, issue we're dealing with right now. To, to really, we're talking about Borg here. Mm. We are coming together as as Earth, a single living entity. Uh, distributed among billions of individual Homo sapiens. The, the problem is that exists independent of us. It's to do with our understanding of that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's our interaction yeah. with that. Yeah, is how do we deal with that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do we inter- See, to me, that's what a new religion would be about. As your journals show, I mean, this is this is the theme in your journals to... Oh, really? Well, a theme. Please give me a break. Well, <laughs> this is the theme that we have discussed. Of last week, yeah. Is it does it really that obvious in there? I mean, because I don't know. I have no perspective on those journals. It's quite odd for me to. I mean, you probably already have a clearly a more objective view of those journals than I will ever have. I think you need to approach it with a perspective of journals prior. You need to the, the whole notion of the way in which an individual constructs a journal is based on so many factors that if you haven't looked at at a number of other people's journals, you're probably going to have a relatively naive view looking at your journal. Yeah. Well, but, see, I don't think of it as a journal in that sense. It wasn't. I wasn't thinking of writing a journal. I was thinking of getting my ideas down so that I could look at them. So, that, that's not doing a journal. I mean, but, you call yeah, that but, a I mean, journal, okay. but most people who write journals write journals as descriptions of, you know, I mean, they're, that's a different thing. And, and in that sense, my journals are not journals. Okay, but, uh, okay, so journals would include things here like collections of letters, even one-directional letters, even letters that people, Okay, all right, you're using the word journal, yeah, in a, in a broadest possible broad, sense. Broad, broad yeah. sense. Yeah. To me, these were research notes, really. They're research notes with shopping lists. It struck me through reading the journals that there were large sections that led towards particular sections. Uh, explorations really? <laughs> of thought that kind of distilled down. And what I've tried to do is... Have you capture, seen the whole thing already or what? I think there is a, there's a period in the kind of late 80s 
the, the, I've have I have favorites through. Yeah, I bet there are that, some places that are really boring. Exactly. <laughs> there are some places where it's just like WTF, you know. And then there are other places that are actually really interesting, and there are other places that are really funny. And I think actually, yeah, okay, good. I'm glad someone can sort this shit out. You need to. The problem is that if. You know, the funny thing is that when we started this project, you lamented my speed reading abilities, and I actually think my speed reading abilities have kept my sanity through this project. Well, it may very well. Yeah, it, it, uh, it, you're right. You're right. If, under certain circumstances, clearly people can do that. It's just, like I say, it, it's, it's – yeah, if you can do that, that's awesome. The final topic I wanted to cover this evening, and my wife has not gone out, so she's still in the house, and I'm mindful that I'm – sitting in a small prior cat-infested room that is progressively heating, um, was associated with some of the discussion I gave last recording with the negative feedback that I'd received from Model Rail Radio. I had kind of percolated through that and recorded an episode of Model Rail Radio last Saturday, which was almost like a Model Rail Radio worst of. It was, <laughs> there were some good components to it, a large number, but halfway through, uh, um, one of the well, both of the characters that I received the majority of the complaints about were on the last show, and both of them were almost satirising the complaints. It was <laughs> really quite extraordinary. So I'm going to be cutting at least an hour's worth of audio from that because these and I I, I gave them the feedback. <laughs> in addition to this we had um, oh man <laughs> so as, as i mentioned to you there are these bertie awards and the fellow who won a bertie award for um fav- what's called favorite part of the show which is the listener voted favorite person on the show <laughs> he he won he came on the show and proceeded to say that his mother had died <laughs> and basically was very depressed and talking about his mother for, again, about an hour and a half on the show. He had a very particular relationship with his mother, as probably some model railroaders do. Uh, she was a very central part of his life, and you could tell that he was genuinely in pain, even though his mother had passed away maybe two months earlier. He yeah. also were, um, is a he works on the, the um, commuter rail in Boston, so he had a double whammy because he had one of these unexploded devices, you know, nearby. He had all this other related nonsense. Um, so, you know, he had all the Boston-related stuff, plus his mother passing away, plus yeah. winning an award. I mean, he'll get a he'll get an, a three D engraved award for you know for being the favorite part of the show for the listeners. Yeah. So, um, having done all of that. And having concluded that recording, um, I received an email, and I, I suspect that this fellow may actually be also a, a Stone Ape listener. I haven't uh, queried that with him. Um, I received an email from um, a long-time participant in Model Rail Radio, who um, is a Vietnam veteran. I mentioned him previously. He's the fellow who was captured. Uh, he is a dean of biological and natural sciences at a university in Florida. He's done very well for himself professionally, I mean, academically. Uh, and he does very, he's very well liked in the model rail community. His big thing is creating very elaborate paper structures um, that basically model real structures. The thing with paper is, paper and card here, 
is that it's as thin as wood in the scale. If you use wood structures, then the wood is not to scale. It's bigger, more lumpy, yeah, more... Yeah, right. The yeah, paper, paper is to scale. Yeah, yeah. So he's an amazing modeler. My wife is a huge fan of his work as well, which always helps. He sent me an email uh, maybe three days ago indicating that the last show he had done, um, the clinic that he'd given, he had a clinic of maybe 12 participants, one of the fellows had turned up and had said, you are one of these liberal professors that are wrecking this country. You need to leave this country before you destroy it. Then he called him a commie and <laughs> stormed out of the class and demanded a refund for his for the class. Yeah. Now, this fellow... My understanding, because I know people through the Model Rail fraternity that give these kind of clinics, is once you've given enough of these clinics, you always have a nut or two or three or four. Sure. And my yeah. view is that this wasn't necessarily a political attack. It was just someone who was just mentally unhinged. Nut. Exactly. <laughs> um, but this fellow very much had the sense that it was a political attack. And I, I exchanged email with him. The other thing that strikes me um, is that I have an, I have. I mean, obviously, I, I talk with you, and I'm very uh, mindful of this listener as well in terms of their his wartime experience. And it's interesting to me because I have almost a distinct view between folks who were conscripted or basically forced into the military and folks who actively choose to go into the military. And it's something that I've had to kind of deconstruct over, you know, many months. Wait, I mean, there must be a relatively small number of people that choose. All the, the active military currently choose to go into the military. Well, they no, but that's hardly a, it. Most of those people don't have any other way to make a living. A lot of them are just poor people who choose that as a way out. That's hardly a free choice. Well, I mean, there are people who who are you know, have a family tradition of military service, and that's a different thing. Is mm. that what you're talking about? Or? I think there's a combination of factors here. My view is, the thing that always frustrates me, and this is ultimately language monkey stuff, is that there are people who don't understand that the ability to move is something that you is not a financial ability. You can move in this country and there is a history of people moving in this country. Yeah, but you're right. Most people are completely and totally unaware of that. The, their, the scope of their possibilities is so restricted by the story they're telling themselves that they can't access that. It's exactly. pointless. Exactly. So, yes, through a series of factors... But I, I mean, I, although I'm not a right libertarian, which seems to be the only kind of libertarians in this part of the world, I am very strongly left libertarian. I believe very strongly that the individual has to, at some level, take responsibility. Absolutely. There are obligations that go with rights. And if you don't, yeah. if you don't explicitly state all of them, then you're, you're just deceiving yourself. Exactly. Right. There are rights and there are obligations, and what are they? Mm. So, I guess my, but my view as well is, um, what was the phrase? A friend of mine used a phrase that I was just projecting my values, which is something that I'm very mindful of. <laughs> but I do see that there is a distinction between choosing to stay in an area. I think of, of African-American migration, particularly migration from the South, 
this has got to be one of the most empowering migration stories, aside from the fact that they a good number of them ended up in ghettos and then had to work their way out of the ghetto. But the kind of generational definition, even internally within the US associated with migration, needs to be something that is ultimately, and this is disturbingly so, taught. People need to understand... <laughs> Yeah. fundamentally that they that the 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 notion of a ghetto or that your family lives in the same place or that you need to suffer in this environment yeah. is not a is not in any way a constriction of the country yeah yeah in, f- in fact for example my my wife's grandfather her uh father's father at age 16 left his township in Pennsylvania or Missouri or whatever and moved to California as a 16-year-old boy. So I think the... Of course, the question is, why is it that some people seem to have that kind of drive and other people don't? That's a very interesting question. But within the narrative of the person who lives in an impoverished area and the military is the only possible option... I think a large part of that is to do with the contemporary narrative. I've, I may have used Yeah, it's it. not the only option. Mm-hmm. It's the one that's advertised, or it's one that's advertised mm. anyway. And uh, if you're not particularly trained to think or anything, you're just going to look at what's available as an explanation or a way out, and there's, that's one way out. As a means of cultural description, I think Hollywood, contemporary Hollywood has been complicit here. In this narrative. I think a a decade ago, or well, two decades ago, there was a film called Boys in the Hood, which I refer to quite frequently. There is a section within that where two two 18-year-old boys are walking down the street, and one is saying to the other one, do not join the military, they're going to abuse you, you will not get the money out that you want to get out of this, you will not get the life experience out the institutional racism that you found here will continue into the military. You need to use your mind to improve yourself, and the military isn't going to do that for you. <laughs> that narrative could never be put into a contemporary film. Because Hollywood has been completely complicit with the current, you know... Yeah. Well, I mean, it could. There are plenty of indie films out there. There's, there's still people doing good stuff. Mm. You know, but, but you're right. You're right. Well, that's the dominant story. Mm. That, that's, that's our job is to break the spell of this story that we've been sold. So my parents were very actively anti-Vietnam. Um, they did a variety of things, in my father's case, to avoid the draft. I mean, basically, you know, criminal misconduct and a variety other things. And they met because of their anti-Vietnam stance. They met, well, they first saw each other at a Bob Dylan concert, but they met following it through a lot of anti-war. Uh, uh, destined to love. <laughs> well, for the next 20 years at least, until my Well, father, that's not bad, yeah, 20 yeah. years, man. That's it's pretty good. Better than nothing. There are three better of us than that the weekend, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, th- the thing that strikes me is that I really... Um, obviously enjoy our conversations uh, and I really enjoy conversing with this model rail radio listener and my hope is that I'll have the opportunity I mean he wants me to stay with him in Florida and all this kind of stuff and he'd certainly have a place to stay here if we had a place where he could stay um, so the the I'm very interested in obviously you know my parents and, and your generation in terms of the experiences that you had my I've come into contact with 
contemporary war veterans. And I guess I'm, I'm going through some kind of internal process associated with understanding a draft culture versus understanding a culture where people just find themselves in an environment. I'm also, through reading and um, various experiences, very sympathetic to the kind of recruiting methods that are used to get folks from all over the world to go and fight against superpowers. And I think it's a very different structure than existed, you know, when you were in the military. So I'm going through some kind of strange internal narrative associated with that currently. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether it will resolve on a greater sense of comfort with regards to folks that serve in the military now. But it is an internal ethical thing, which I think probably in my parents' generation, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't really talked to either of my parents associated with the conversations that you and I have. And I certainly ah. haven't talked to them about folks such as this fellow in Florida. Because I think the, I'm very mindful of the experiences of, um, well, the need to understand on some fundamental level that whole period of time, the notion, I mean, I'm reading currently quite a bit of, um, you know, Vietnam veteran autobiography stuff to kind of get into that mindset as mm -hmm. well. But Berkeley and local secondhand bookstores are absolutely, I mean, they're locals that are writing these books um, yeah. as well. So, yes, it is an interesting process because I think ultimately... I, it's going to come to some conclusion, I'm assuming, but I'm still working my way through it. It's going to come to some conclusion. So, one thing I did through the week, one of these two fellows in Boston had a reading list on Amazon, of which, aside from the standard um, fake your credit cards, fake your personal information, was a series of quite detailed uh, histories of Chechnya. Uh, I think I have two histories of Chechnya um, that I've read that are relatively vague, but all the books that he had in his Amazon wish list were books that I hadn't read. So I've since purchased copies of all these books and no doubt now are flagged on multiple watch lists. <laughs> but the thing that strikes me through that... <laughs> yeah, well, fuck it. What do you, you know? Is that yeah. I've also read the contemporary military analysis. I mean, I can't recall whether we had that discussion. I think we did, maybe in some of our early recordings. But that is very much associated with the um, notion of kind of crusades and things like that. It's very curious reading the kind of military intelligence on, on anomaly on our side uh, and the whole analysis <laughs> that is very, very curious reading. And it's difficult because, you know... That's the way they couch it. Yes. I mean, it's couched in religious terms to begin with. The nature of, and here I'm going to use the broad term Mujahideen literature, is considerably more practical than the kind of broader uh, crusade element in the... And the, the Mujahideen uh, encompasses who? It encompasses any young man, typically, who goes to fight in a foreign country, uh, well, not necessarily a foreign country, because obviously there were local Mujahideen, but basically you're fighting against some kind of colonial power. So it, the origins of and, it... And in what countries would this be occurring? Algeria, initially. Algeria is the first modern Mujahideen conflict. Yeah, that's, that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good place to do it. 
Well, yes. And then it's considered on from there. But yeah. the thing that strikes me, and this also struck me associated with the, um, you know, the 9-11 hijackers, was they were all smart. Well, in the 9-11 case, they were all university-educated men. They had an engineering master's degree, something like that. There is something that is capturing these people. Yeah, yeah, it's scary. And unless you have an understanding of that, then you're not actually... Drones don't actually resolve this. You know, I'm, I've lived with some Thai people, and their kids who came over here when they were like 9 and 12, and now are in their 20s, uh, and they've mastered English. I mean, they're, you couldn't tell that it Certainly. wasn't their first language, but they, they're fluent in both uh, Thai and Korean. And they revere the king. <laughs> you know, the king is like a god to them. Yeah. And they know nothing about it. I mean, they came here when they were 9 and 12. So they have some early memories. But somehow, that remains. It's, it's stunning to me that, that these kids who appear to be totally Americanized kids, you bring up the subject of the king and they turn into, ooh, the king, ooh. <laughs> have you ever known any Jordanians? The same is true in Jordan. The distinction in Jordan is that the king actually, well, the, 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 the now deceased king, the, the former king, um, the current king's father, yeah. actually fought in gun battles in order to maintain his position. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I have some view of royalty that if that's actually occurred, even though I don't find them particularly legitimate... They just seem a little bit cooler than, you know, Prince Charles, basically. <laughs> <laughs> like the fact that they could have actually died. You know. But, nonetheless, and I, I have a family member that's, that's relatively close to Prince Charles, and it's one of the most curious things. Because um, although he's so heavily connected to the royal family, he still thinks of himself as, you know... Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a very curious thing, my uncle. But anyway, aside from that, I do understand the phenomena of the king with regards to ties. I don't understand it. I mean, I understand it in terms of having met ties that have photos of the king and these kind of things. And it never really struck me as... Um, but, uh, you know, I dated, and as you have, I mean, maybe you have similar stories, but I dated a Taiwanese uh, woman. I mean, she was a Malay national, but her family had come from Taiwan. And culturally, there were so many very strange and interesting elements through that. And it, it, it <laughs> yeah, is... I, yeah. I mean, this is actually something that's very interesting. I'm interested in getting through your, um, you know, your married section, or well, finding it firstly in the journals, which is the first part. But the, 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 <laughs> your married period... Um, I was actually mindful of this tonight, because after... You actually could identify that. From the writing, I'm, I'm looking. I'm going to go through that and get to it in a more interesting. Yeah, point. But I don't I just, think it had much impact on me. No, but <laughs> but that'd be interesting to say. Like, this is fascinating to see what you're going to find out. I'm interested in seeing shift. if your diet changed through that period. <laughs> that's the that's the level. Okay, of okay, I got it. Well, whatever. You know, mm. listen, insights can come from any bizarre place. You never know. Mm. Take what you can get. Mm. Did your wife cook for you? (laughs) 
She was never my wife. We got married so that she could get her green card. Did she cook for you, Heron? That's no, not the question. No, of course not. No. Okay. She was her and I was me, and neither one of us thought we were getting married for any kind of silly romantic marriage. I'm not talking choices. about that. I'm talking about whether your diet changed through this period. Oh. No, probably not. I just kept doing whatever it is I was doing. Although, back at that time, I don't think I was much aware of that. Although, what do you have? My shopping list, I That's guess. Like so you know what I was buying. We will get to that in a few weeks' time, listeners. <laughs> Holy shit. Oh, no. I'm currently juicing heron for intentional purposes. Oh, I never thought of this. <laughs> oh, yes. We will return to this episode, heron. <laughs> I've told you about this phone hacker called uh, John Draper, or known as Captain Crunch. Right. He had a period of time where he had um, a Chinese man that lived with him. He was a Chinese man who was slightly older than I was. His name, I think, was um, John Chen. And um, he would cook. He wouldn't cook. He would make sushi for Crunch. They were like a married couple. It was really quite curious um, because Crunch, I guess, in the time was in his late 60s, I mean, probably your age, maybe slightly older. Um, and they would have these long kind of marital disputes. I mean, obviously, they weren't married. Um, oh, but, but the question is whether they were sexually involved. So this has always been the thing with Crunch is that he's so um, homophobic in public, like almost in jest. Like, you know, he says, oh, there's faggots and this kind of stuff. But I don't know if he's ever used that level of derogatory, but he's of that kind of derogatory level. We, It is very, very strange. But anyway, the thing that struck me through that period... Because there are a lot of weird people, you know? They might have been epistemological brothers. Oh, I think they were. They certainly were like a married couple. I mean, it was really quite funny to be in their presence. Yeah, I can understand that. It might not involve sex at all. Um. My understanding is that John Chin used to beat Crunch quite heavily over this. <laughs> so, it was really quite funny. But the thing, the the, the well, the, listen, you know, you take what you can get. <laughs> apparently so. Apparently so. But the thing through that period was um, that Crunch was eating sushi. I don't think Crunch had ever eaten sushi through that through any other period. And he has this, when you go out to eat with Crunch, you always go to these kind of all-day breakfast place. I mean, Denny's is his, his usual his haunt. His favorite place. Uh, and he orders, he orders pancakes and bacon, but the bacon can't be too crunchy. It needs to be a little bit chewy because of his teeth. Yeah, yeah. And he will send things back. He's just really, normally At when Denny's, I Denny's, he sends stuff back. <laughs> normally when I go, when I would go out to eat with him, I would always, like, basically double the check. Everywhere, because he was just so disruptive and so rude. I once... The longest night I ever spent was a night in the YMCA where he insisted that we get a room together. And I basically... I kept one eye open all night. And then finally we went down to breakfast. And, um... Oh, God. There were so many incidents through that trip. But we went down to breakfast and, you know, I think it was probably... I think it was in San Francisco. It was YMCA in San Francisco. And um, the woman, you know, had her radio playing. I mean, if if smoking had been allowed, she would have had a cigarette, you know, hanging out of her mouth, basically. She just, classic kind of, you know, big city. She's been doing this job for 30 years. She doesn't particularly like it, but she can make pancakes and bacon. Yeah. And Crunch was just going ape on this woman. You know, turn that racket down, get the bacon out, it's cold, send it back, all this kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. And he's very loud, too. Yeah. And at the end, I 
I think I I think I paid her sixty dollars for this meal because I was so mortified. Because <laughs> he's such this, an asshole. Exactly. And everywhere we would go, it would be like this. But the thing with the period of time where Crunch was with John Chen was he actually started to put on weight. Like John Chen through his feeding regimes. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was actually you know, and these these accounts of this period of time. I only probably spent maybe two and a half days. See, this is what's so scary, is if you get known to the public, then all your personal foibles get articulated. Oh, he's been reported about in the Wall Street Journal and CNN. CNN basically made him out to be a You don't know how fucking weird I am, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't want all my weirdness into the world. Well, it's the way that you interact with people. I mean, no, but again, you know, my view is that Crunch... When the Wall Street Journal came out, which basically said that he was mentally ill from early childhood, he was all gung ho about that article. I mean, this you've yeah, got to get the mon- makes mentality. Sense. Yeah. You've got to get the mentality that this is the whole notion. We talked about this, I think, last week, associated with Wozniak and Dancing with the Stars. You've got to maintain your your narrative. You've got to be in the the public consciousness and yeah. crunch through being some mentally disturbed, washed up hacker. <laughs> We're still at least in the Wall Street and Journal. That, it's a story. You know, it's not much of a story, but we'll exactly. take it. So yes. <laughs> but anyway, yes, we we will we will detail Heron's married life in upcoming recordings. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. I, this would be fascinating to me. I have no sense of that at all. You know, because, like I say, getting married was just a technicality. We were living together anyway, and we figured, what the fuck? You know, mm. get, get a, you know, you can get a green card. You know. Mm. Well, Heron, I think we've uh, we've covered all possible topics. You've gotten the right number of. Oh, we haven't even come close to all possible. Well, all possible topics on my little list. So ah, okay, all right. So we will we will move beyond this, no doubt. Next recording, it's been a pleasure as always. And folks, let me put out this point once again: the um, Stone Ape Facebook group is the place to go to meet others who are listening to this podcast, but also oh, to yeah. get, the, um, get the updates before the shows come out. So you two can throw in topics, um, and if you want us to discuss various points or explore various ideas, that's the place to go. <laughs> Boy, I feel like I ought to be able to say something to everybody who's listening, but I can't think of what it is I should say. <laughs> After five glasses of wine, you need, to, you need to consider this at the start of the recording, Heron, not at the end of the recording. I guess I've already said everything I need to say, so yes. you're right. Yeah, I don't need to say anything more. Thank you. Yeah, actually, I do appreciate anybody who's listening to this. I, I, I realize that most people don't give a shit about this stuff. And if anybody thinks this is even vaguely interested, then you're my kind of person, and I'm glad to meet you. Amen. Yeah. And with that, I will say good night, Heron. Okay, good night.